This is Audible. Sounds True presents Radical Forgiveness with Colin Tipping. And now session one, Radical Forgiveness as a Heavenly Worldview. I've often said that I wish I could find another word other than forgiveness to describe the concept of radical forgiveness, because it comprises so much more than mere forgiveness. It would be nearer the truth to say that it's a different way of looking at life, and that it leads to a completely new way of living. If you already know what radical forgiveness is, and how it can literally change your life, you'll know what I mean. On the other hand, If you have no prior understanding of it and don't know why it's called radical forgiveness, well, don't worry, you soon will. So what is radical about this form of forgiveness? Well, perhaps we should ask ourselves first what the word radical actually means. The term radical has two meanings, both of them appropriate to radical forgiveness. In the first one, to be radical means to go to the very root of something, in order to discover the true essence of it, or the core truth. So that's one meaning. It's also used to mean being on the cutting edge of a movement or way of thinking. We often speak of a radical departure to describe a dramatic move away from one thing in the direction of another. It's clear to me that radical forgiveness typifies both of these meanings. It definitely goes to the very root of what it means to forgive, even to the point where, assuming we could see the spiritual big picture, which of course we cannot, that there is nothing to forgive. Because, from a spiritual point of view, nothing wrong ever happened. And it's cutting edge too in the sense that it goes against everything that we know and asks that we open up to a totally different way of looking at life and how life unfolds for us. A new paradigm, in fact. People often ask me, What happened that inspired you to create Radical Forgiveness and then to write a book? Did you have something big to forgive? Well, I'm always sorry to have to disappoint them in that I really don't have a big transformational story to tell. The only thing I can point to as being the moment I was hit by it when I just happened to be listening to a tape by a man called Arnold Patton, who was a seminar leader in the 80s and 90s. He wrote a book called You Can Have It All, and ran workshops called Celebration of Abundance. He used to talk and then invite people to come to the microphone with a question. Well, I don't recall the question that the person asked, but I will never forget the answer. Arnold said in a loud, firm voice, Listen, forgiveness is not letting bygones be bygones. It is recognizing that nothing wrong ever happened. At that very moment, it felt as if something shifted in me. I really didn't know what he meant, 
but at some level it made perfect sense to me. I think in that moment I experienced a paradigm shift, or at least the beginnings of one, because after that everything changed. So what is a paradigm shift? Well, to me it represents nothing less than a major restructuring of one's total cognitive map relative to a major field of conventional knowledge, understanding and practice. I think of a paradigm shift as a slow movement from one firmly established way of thinking to another way that is completely different or in some cases even running counter to the prevailing one. Such a shift can take a long time to mature. Years in fact, decades even. It's like we have to totally rewire our brain, unwind all our cherished beliefs and assumptions and shift our perception of reality in a major way. Sociologist Thomas Kuhn described three distinct stages in the birth of a new paradigm. The first stage, he said, is characterized by a total resistance to the new paradigm and extreme ridicule of those proposing it. In other words, it makes no sense whatsoever to those holding the conventional wisdom and they feel completely secure in their denunciation of it and their need to scoff at the proponents. Those who advocate a new paradigm have often found themselves in the wilderness for years, perhaps their whole lives, before their contemporaries would even begin to look at it as a possibility. At the second stage, there arises some sympathy with parts of the new paradigm, but people try very hard to make it fit the old one in some way. They attempt to explain it by referencing it back to the previous paradigm, using the old language and concepts. A good example of this is when doctors refer to meditation as a good, quote, relaxation technique. They just don't get it that one meditates not to relax, but in order to focus the mind, in order to become receptive to the still, small voice within that connects us to the source of our being. Now, that the body relaxes during meditation is helpful, but it is certainly not the purpose of the exercise. When the third stage is reached, there is a total acceptance of the new paradigm as being self-evident, and at that point, everyone is comfortable rejecting the old one. A good example of a paradigm shift in which we are all totally involved as consumers of healthcare is how we are shifting uneasily from the existing paradigm of Western allopathic medicine to a new paradigm based on energy medicine. Modern science-based medicine has been the predominant form of medicine in the Western world for the last 400 years. Even today, the vast majority of people accept all the major premises on which it is based and believe it to be self-evidently the right way to practice medicine. In the last 20 years, however, this paradigm has been challenged, and there has been a perceptible shift towards energy medicine, or alternative medicine as it's generally known. It's been mostly a consumer-driven shift, with the medical profession fighting it every inch of the way. However, since people are now spending so much of their money on various forms of energy medicines such as acupuncture, homeopathy, herbalism, chiropractic and so on, the medical doctors have begun to take notice. If you are even vaguely familiar with how things stand with both of these forms of medicine, you'll probably recognize that we're only just beginning to emerge from Kuhn's first stage, 
and that's only because the public have voted with their pocketbooks and have switched in large numbers to alternative energy medicine. This has forced the medical establishment to begin talking about energy medicine, but as yet only in the language of traditional allopathic medicine. As you would expect, they completely fail to convey the essence of energy medicine, and they do their very best to discredit it. Of course, none of it has anything to do with logic or even common sense. It's not about the facts or even science. It's simply a question of whether one's consciousness is at stage one, two, or three. It's a matter of where one stands, or what position one takes in defense of the model we have in our head about it. In this case, medicine in general. These are the things that determine the nature of the debate, not science, logic, or training. In actual fact, it appears that in the case of energy medicine, the public is way ahead of the media and the medical profession. They've tried it, it seems to work, so they go back for more. It's that simple. You see, the public is not much invested in either paradigm, except to the extent that they find it efficacious to their health. That's their only interest. Doctors, on the other hand, have many years of education, training, and money invested in the allopathic approach, so naturally they will be the last to accept the new paradigm. It's the same with all forms of conventional wisdom. Look what happened to Galileo when he challenged the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe. All of us in our own minds have a highly developed model of the world and our place in that world. We call it our world view. Another name for it is our cosmology. It is not necessarily uniform from culture to culture, and in some cases it is radically different. That's because knowledge itself is socially constructed. To the extent that everyone in a particular culture shares a relatively stable worldview, it becomes the agreed-upon paradigm about how the world works and how life itself operates. To those who share that worldview, it seems nothing less than self-evidently true. That is, until it begins to shift. Traditional forgiveness fits very well in the prevailing worldview. It is firmly grounded in the world of humanity, even though it does have religious overtones. Most religions give a lot of emphasis to it and stress the need for it. But it is grounded in the world of humanity in the sense that it calls upon us to exercise the best of human virtues, such as compassion, mercy, understanding, tolerance, and humility, while at the same time holding on to the idea that something wrong happened that someone else did something to us that makes us automatically a victim. Now, radical forgiveness also asks that we bring compassion, empathy, understanding, and humility to the situation, but it goes one step further in that it also asks that we become open to the possibility that we actually had a hand in creating the situation, that in some way, at the spiritual level, we were complicit with the other person in bringing that experience into being as an opportunity to learn and grow. In other words, our two souls agreed to play victim and perpetrator for each other as a particular soul lesson. That's what I believe Arnold meant when he said that forgiveness is recognizing that nothing wrong happened and that things don't happen to us, 
They happen for us. This is where we begin to shift into a wholly new way of looking at reality. As soon as we open to the possibility that everything that happens does so for a reason, we are right on the cutting edge of a new paradigm. It might be interesting to do a little survey here so that you can get a feel for what your worldview might be, especially as it relates to forgiveness. It will enable you to see whether you're on your way to accepting the new paradigm, and if you are, to see what stage you might be at. I'm going to read out what six different people might have written in response to the question, quote, How do you see life in general? And how do you operate as a human being within that framework? And in particular, how do you see forgiveness fitting in with that worldview? Close quote. I want you to listen carefully and then pick the two that most closely resemble your own personal views about the world and your place in it. So, here are the six worldviews expressed as personal statements. Number one. I take a rather scientific, secular, rational view of life. I think that human beings are simply part of the evolutionary spiral and that like every other animal on the planet, we are born, we live, and then we die. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's more or less it in a nutshell. I'm not a strong believer in a deity or God, though I wouldn't go so far as to call myself an atheist. I'm not inclined to think that there is a reality beyond what I register with my five senses. If there is, I have no real idea what that might be like. I'm certainly not in touch with it and wouldn't know how to talk about it. Now, forgiveness means to me making a conscious decision to let bygones be bygones. Number two. My spirituality and my worldview comes directly from my religious beliefs. I tend to see the world in terms of a continual struggle between good and evil. I believe that evil does exist, and it's my job to stay vigilant and defend against the ever-present danger of evil, or Satan, coming into my life. God made this world, and he made me as well. He remains in heaven, but is always watching and judging me harshly for having committed the original sin. When I die, I hope he will judge me kindly, though, and that I will go to heaven. If I don't live a good life, I'll go to hell. I believe in being kind to others, but I believe forgiveness is not ours to bestow. All we can do is ask God or Jesus to do it on our behalf. So in my book, forgiveness is prayer. And ultimately, should the prayer be answered, grace. Number three. I'm somewhat open to spiritual ideas and find them intellectually interesting, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a very spiritual person. I am somewhat open to the idea that we come in to learn certain lessons, and I do try to interpret life this way, but I don't find it easy in practice. Even though I'm quick to blame and see fault in others, I do try to entertain the possibility that the person I'm upset with is there to teach me something. I know I shouldn't try to figure out what the lesson is, but I'm an intellectual person, and I love to know the how and why of things. I also get it at the intellectual level that the person is providing an opportunity to learn and grow, but I find it hard to really integrate that into my being. 
So I always struggle with that in real life. Again, I understand at the intellectual level that true forgiveness comes when we realize that everything happens for a reason, but in everyday life, I find it difficult to put it into practice. Number four. I see life as a mystery, not so much to be understood and figured out, but to be experienced as fully as possible. I think the most spiritual people are the ones who are the most human. I'm very open to the idea that there is more than one reality. There is at least this physical reality that we inhabit bodily every day, but I'm also very open to the idea that there is another reality that we cannot see, which we might call the spiritual reality. I don't think anyone really knows what that reality is, but when I open my eyes fully and feel into my gut, I sense evidence enough that such a reality exists, and I'm comfortable with that. I have my own way of connecting with that reality and expressing my spirituality. For example, through organized religion, being a member of a like-minded group, meditation, retreats, healing, praying, chanting, and so on. And I'm happy with this. Now, forgiveness to me is done by extending compassion to the other person and seeing him or her as an imperfect human being just like me and everyone else. Number five. I'm a spiritual person having a human experience. By that I mean I have chosen to come to planet Earth in order to learn lessons and evolve spiritually. This is the school and life is the curriculum. What happens during my life are my lessons. I've come into the life experience with the desire to fully grasp what oneness is by experiencing the opposite of it, separation. I had made agreements with souls prior to my incarnation that they would do things not so much to me, though it will feel that way while I'm in a body, but for me. I also enroll others while I'm here to give me opportunities to learn. They actually look like my enemies, but I see them as my healing angels. That's how I see forgiveness, that everything that happens occurs for a spiritual purpose, and that while we remain accountable for what we do in the human world, in purely spiritual terms, Nothing wrong ever happens. Number six. I'm totally into metaphysics and I see myself as a very spiritual person. One of the ways I see my life on this planet is being on the wheel of karma, reincarnating over and over, lifetime after lifetime, learning lessons, balancing energies, and evolving spiritually until I reach completion. I'm in touch with the spiritual realm and receive guidance from that side of the veil. I have several spirit guides and I talk with angels a lot. I believe that we human beings are all part of the Godhead. Our purpose for our life is being to assist God in expanding his or her consciousness and eventually to co-create heaven on earth. As far as forgiveness is concerned, I am certain in my own mind that everything is in divine order and that there is nothing to forgive. Forgiveness, therefore, is, for me, moot. So there you are. Six different approaches to life, insofar as it relates to one's spirituality and approach to forgiveness. Did you find yourself identifying with one or two of them in particular? I have put them on a separate track, so if you want to go over them again, you can pause and replay the six worldviews. But remember, no one worldview is better than another. 
They're just different. And of course, you're probably going to find yourself identifying with several of them in one way or another. But there is likely to be one or two that you most clearly identify with. The only one that's likely to be a deal-breaker as far as radical forgiveness is concerned is number two. That's the one where the belief is that forgiveness can only be given by Jesus or God and that we cannot do it for ourselves. Anyone taking a secular rational view, as in number one, is clearly committed to the old paradigm and traditional forgiveness. Someone who identifies strongly with number three which features a more intellectual approach, is likely to have a different problem in that he or she will try to figure it all out and may even delay trying it before they can see the proof of it. Such a person will be trying to use their mental intelligence exclusively instead of allowing their spiritual intelligence to do the work. Someone who is more intuitive and open-minded is likely to identify with number four and they're going to be open to radical forgiveness in a new way and likely to experience a lot of ahas and epiphanies as they open up to the possibilities inherent in the process. Learning will be rapid for these folks. Those who identify more with five and six are already there since they already have a fairly developed metaphysical viewpoint, though number six may have a little trouble staying grounded in the technology. However, except for the provisos I've already given, none of it matters really. The only thing that does matter is that you be willing to use the tools that radical forgiveness provides. They provide the bridge between the old and new paradigms and enable you to be in both at the same time. And the interesting thing is that no particular belief is required. You don't even have to believe in radical forgiveness and you certainly don't have to be grounded 100% in the new paradigm. Far from it, in fact. So long as you use the tools, they'll work in spite of you. Now, for the sake of putting this in context, let's go back to the old paradigm for a moment and see when it was formed. You might be quite surprised to learn that it's only been in existence for about 400 years. The people most responsible for creating it in the 16th and 17th centuries were Descartes, Newton, and Darwin. René Descartes, for instance, the French philosopher, was convinced that only science and mathematics should be used to explain everything in nature. The human body was to be understood merely as a complex machine that could be simply reduced to its constituent parts, molecules, atoms, and other measurables. This led to a very mechanistic and reductionist view of reality, Anything that could not be measured or objectively quantified was ignored. With all the focus being on the physical body as a machine, it became the conventional wisdom, probably for the first time in human history, that mind and body were totally separate. Newtonian physics gave support to this mechanistic viewpoint in the way it described how the physical world worked in terms of cause and effect and all the laws of mechanics. Similarly, with his theory of evolution, Darwin held that everything had evolved by a process of random chance and by selective mutations based on the mechanism of natural selection and the survival of the fittest. These viewpoints became the model for the next 400 years for how we should view our own life as being nothing more than a string of unrelated, random events 
happening for no particular reason other than chance or the direct consequences of our own actions or those of people around us. Life simply happens. There is little or no meaning in it and very little purpose other than to survive. You do the best you can with what you've got, procreate in order to continue the lineage, and then die at the appropriate time. The focus is on the external world, especially on our own physical body, its comfort, and the satisfaction of desires. Under this prevailing paradigm, our belief is that the objective world out there exists separately from us, and our consciousness is of no consequence to it. It is a cause-and-effect world, and we are the effect, never the cause. Our awareness is largely a matter of billions of neurons firing in our brain every millisecond. And our bodies are simply elegant machines composed of atoms, molecules and chemicals. It's all pretty impersonal, indifferent and meaningless. Life's a bitch and then you die, as they say. Darwin's theory and his notion of the survival of the fittest creates the shark environment, or dog-eat-dog philosophy, that legitimizes competitive, discriminatory, and even cruel, dispassionate behavior towards other people. It is actually called social Darwinism. What arises from this cause-and-effect view of life is the idea that if we are not to be buffeted around by the meaningless vagaries of life, we must do as much as possible to gain control over it. Otherwise, we'll not survive. That's what makes it a fear-based system. If life is uncaring, dispassionate and neutral, that means we're totally on our own. So we plan, organize, educate ourselves, build physical structures, produce products and do our very best to control every aspect of our lives and everything around us primarily with the aim of achieving a high level of physical comfort and security. And then, for everything that we cannot control, we buy a lot of insurance and hope that nothing unexpected happens. When it does, we're devastated and feel totally victimized by life. In short, the current paradigm is based on a profound belief in separation and duality driven by fear, judgment, blame and guilt the result of which is continual conflict. Even God is seen as the judging father up there, who is bent on punishing us for separating from him and for not being good. This is the context in which traditional forgiveness operates. Bad things are done to us, and we have to do our best to find a way to forgive them. But what does that mean? No one can really tell you what it means except that you need to find a way to stop being angry and resentful about what happened. But how? No one can really tell you how. And in some cultures, it's not even considered honorable to forgive. In the Middle East, for example, honor demands revenge, not forgiveness. An eye for an eye, Hammurabi's code. If a family member is killed by someone from another sect, that killing has to be avenged. It's a matter of honor a perverse sort of justice, if you like. But even in our own society, forgiveness remains extremely difficult because in spite of our wanting to forgive, we still hold on to the idea that something bad happened, that we were victimized in some way, and another person is responsible for our misfortune. And as I said before, this is victim consciousness. 
The problem is that in nearly all cases where something really bad is done to someone, the need to blame and condemn is infinitely stronger than the need to forgive, which is why traditional forgiveness takes so long and is universally seen as being extremely difficult to do. Few people ever really achieve it. The new paradigm, which supports radical forgiveness, could not be more different from the one I have just described. And that, in turn, means that radical forgiveness is fundamentally different from traditional forgiveness as well. So what are the features of this new paradigm? Which, by the way, is not so new. It's been around for eons, but it was pushed out 400 years ago by those three heavyweights of the so-called Enlightenment, Descartes, Newton and Darwin, plus many others besides, of course. In former times, the healing arts had always considered mind, body and spirit as inseparable, and all treatments proceeded from that assumption. It is only now that we're beginning to really see the absurdity of elevating the physical body above all other aspects of our beingness. So, whereas the paradigm created by those folks emphasize individual separateness, the new paradigm emphasizes oneness, unity, and love. Yes, of course there is anger, fear, and guilt, and sadness as well, but any one of those feelings is actually love distorted by the beliefs attached to the feeling. As it says in A Course in Miracles, every action is either an expression of love or a call for love. Now, whereas the old paradigm is focused exclusively on physical reality, that which can be seen, defined, and measured, the new one recognizes that there exists another more subtle reality, a spiritual reality, which, while it is beyond our ability to detect it with our five senses, because it vibrates at a different frequency, is nevertheless real and detectable in subtle ways through our spiritual intelligence. That's the part of us that knows the truth of who we are and connects us to universal intelligence, whatever that is for you. Some people call it God, others call it the universe or universal intelligence, great creator or some other name. By the way, you don't have to believe in God per se for radical forgiveness to work. Even though it is a spiritual process, I refer to it as a secular spiritual technology that only asks us to be open to the idea that there is some overarching intelligence, greater than our own individual egos, that appears to be working in our lives. Exactly what that is, we don't know yet. It's also a fact that you don't even have to believe in any of the underlying assumptions of radical forgiveness. That's why I call them assumptions, rather than principles. As I said earlier, belief is not required because there are Intellectual intelligence is not the primary means through which we achieve radical forgiveness. It is also a fact that you don't even have to believe in any of the underlying assumptions of radical forgiveness. That's why I call them assumptions rather than principles. As I said earlier, belief is not required because our intellectual intelligence is not the primary means through which we achieve radical forgiveness. It makes no sense to our rational minds which are still mostly committed to old paradigm thinking anyway. But it does make perfect sense to our spiritual intelligence. And it's to this part of our mind that we appeal when we use the tools of radical forgiveness. So, let's get a little bit more specific now and enumerate some of these assumptions underlying the new paradigm 
and how they apply to radical forgiveness. I have 12 that I will share with you now. Here's the first one. I'm sure you've heard it before many times, the idea that there are no accidents and that everything happens for a reason. In other words, everything works exactly as it should and everything is totally purposeful and part of a divine plan, even when it looks to be anything but perfect. A lot of people say that, but what they often fail to appreciate is that there are no exceptions. It either applies to everything or nothing. And that's when it gets tough, but there's no getting around it. I'll say more about this later. Here's assumption number two. We become free of victim consciousness when we open up to the idea that things don't happen to us, but for us. Our soul actually creates these situations as opportunities for us to learn and grow. Therefore, at the spiritual level, nothing wrong ever happened. Consequently, there is nothing to forgive. Assumption number three. Contrary to the popular view, therefore, life is not a random set of events without purpose or intelligence. What appears to be haphazard is really the unfoldment of a divine plan that is totally purposeful in terms of our spiritual evolution. It's a dynamic plan that changes every time we use our free will to make a decision, but it's always in a state of divine perfection. Assumption number four. Whereas the existing paradigm requires physical proof and measurement of existence, the new paradigm asks us to trust our inner knowing that there is more to reality than that which we can register with our five senses or known instruments. We have to surrender to the idea that reality is far bigger than we have the capacity to comprehend. Not yet being privy to the big picture, we simply don't know all the possible variables of any situation that confronts us. However, our spiritual intelligence does, and it knows exactly what's in our best interest. By the way, another way to think of spiritual intelligence is to see it as the wisdom of our higher self. But I have no doubt that we're here for a purpose, and that brings me to assumption number five. That is, that our soul has chosen to incarnate into this world in order to expand its experience of oneness by experiencing the opposite of it, separation. The human experience provides ample opportunity to feel separation in many different ways, abandonment, rejection, betrayal, abuse, cheating, and so on. Assumption number six is that in order to make it work, we had to agree to have spiritual amnesia, at least for a period of time, until the moment arrived when, at some predetermined moment, we would begin to awaken. That's when we would realize that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. In spite of that new awareness, however, we would stay firmly grounded in the human experience and, in many instances, become more inclined to spend the remainder of our lives being of service to others. Number seven is an assumption in its own right, but follows on naturally from number six. And that is, prior to and even during the process of awakening, our spiritual intelligence will keep on creating situations that offer us the opportunity to see the limitations in our thinking or unconscious beliefs connected to all the ways we have experienced separation. For example, if we have been abandoned or rejected, 
we might have begun to believe that we're unlovable or not good enough. Our spiritual intelligence attracts people into our lives to mirror those beliefs or lovingly act out our misperceptions so we can see what they are. Then we can begin to awaken to the truth of who we are. So while these people appear to be our enemies, they are really angels in disguise. They are people that we have attracted into our lives to mirror for us what we hate in ourselves and have denied, repressed and projected onto them. The principle here is, if you spot it, you got it. (laughs) That seems like bad news, but it really isn't. It actually means this person is giving you the opportunity to awaken, which is the good news. Once you see it that way, all you have to do at that point is to use a radical forgiveness tool to forgive that person, or shall we say, give thanks to that person for helping you see the truth of who you really are. You would then have moved one step further towards your full awakening. Assumption number eight. Yes, people are mirrors, but life itself is a mirror too. If you want to know what your unconscious beliefs, ideas, attitudes, etc. are, just look at what is showing up in your life. For example, if you believe that you can't trust people, you'll continually attract people into your life who will betray you. We are very committed to being right about our beliefs, so we unconsciously create all sorts of ways to prove or validate them. That's how powerful we are, and we don't know it. Assumption number nine. Since everything happens for a reason, there is no such thing as right or wrong. It just is. From a spiritual perspective, nothing wrong or right is ever happening, and there is nothing to forgive. Assumption number 10. Whereas in the old paradigm, the focus was always on the objective world out there, the new paradigm recognizes that the world out there is a projection of the world in here, and that there is no separation between them. It's all one. Even God now lives within each one of us instead of up there. We're now one with God, and God is love, the unifying force in the universe. So we are love too. Assumption number 11. Whereas the old paradigm places us totally at the mercy of life, with no part to play in the creation of it, the new paradigm offers us the opportunity to be not just the effect in the cause and effect world, but the cause. The physicists have proven that consciousness is the creative force in the universe and that matter manifests as a consequence of our observation of it. Though, as I say, quantum physics supports the new paradigm to an extraordinary degree, our own personal form of validation of it arises as a profound inner knowing. Therefore, the new paradigm at this point in time is not so much a theory as an experience. And basically, the only real proof we have is that when we trust it and go with it, it seems to work. There is no better example of this than radical forgiveness. I've been teaching it for more than a decade and find it to be extraordinarily successful. It really does work, and yet it is built entirely on the basis of the new paradigm. The basic assumptions of radical forgiveness are virtually identical to those of the new paradigm which I've already described to you. One, we have bodies that die, but we have immortal souls that existed prior to our incarnation and continue to exist after death. 
Therefore, death is an illusion. 2. While our bodies and our senses tell us we are all separate individuals, we are all one. We all individually vibrate as part of a single whole. 3. In order to exponentially expand our awareness of oneness, we agreed to come to this world of duality in order to experience the exact opposite of oneness, separation. 4. Part of the agreement was that we should forget the world of oneness we came from in order to fully experience the pain of separation. When we have experienced the amount of pain we agreed to have in this lifetime, we use radical forgiveness to awaken and remember who we are. 5. Since the pain of separation is an emotional experience, we needed a body to be able to feel it. 6. The human experience is meant to be an emotional one. So, to the extent that we deny our feelings is the extent to which we deny our purpose for being here. 7. We are spiritual beings having a spiritual experience in a human body. 8. Vibrationally, we live in two worlds simultaneously. First, the world of divine truth, or spirit, and second, the world of humanity. Once we awaken, we can live comfortably in both. 9. The world of humanity is a spiritual classroom, and life is the curriculum. Our lessons are the events that happen in life. The objective is to awaken to the truth of who we are and return home. 10. When we decided to incarnate into the world of humanity, God gave us total free will to live the experiment in any way we choose and to find ourselves the way back home. 11. We have three forms of intelligence, mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, and spiritual intelligence. And our spiritual intelligence knows the truth of who we are and connects us directly to universal intelligence. 12. Life is not random. It provides for the purposeful unfoldment of our own divine plan with opportunities to make choices and decisions in every moment, guided by our higher self and our ego. 13. The ego is part of my soul, whose job it is to lovingly find all sorts of ways for me to experience the pain of separation, that being the purpose for my being on the earth plane. 14. We create our reality through the law of cause and effect. Thoughts are causes that show up in our world as physical effects. Reality is an outplaying of our consciousness. Our world offers a mirror of our beliefs. 15. We, at the soul level, get precisely what we need in our lives for our spiritual growth. How we judge what we actually get determines whether we experience life as either painful or joyful. 16. Through relationship, we learn and grow. Through relationship, we heal and are returned to wholeness and truth. We need others to mirror our misperceptions and our projections and to help us bring repressed material to consciousness for healing. 17. Through the law of resonance, we attract people who resonate with our issues so we can heal them. For example, if abandonment is our issue, we will tend to attract people who abandon us. In that sense, they serve as our teachers. 18. We come into the physical life experience with a mission, 
to fully experience a particular energy pattern so that we can feel the feelings associated with that pattern and then transform the energy through love. 19. Physical reality is an illusion created by our five senses. Matter consists of interrelating energy fields vibrating at different frequencies. At first blush, you would think that the two life paradigms were mutually exclusive. However, just as ordinary people, in taking more responsibility for their own health and healing, simply take the best of traditional medicine and the best of energy medicine and put them together into a combination that works for them, so we, as spiritual beings doing our spiritual journey on the earth plane, need to be able to work with both life paradigms at the same time. We need to be as much grounded in the paradigm based on the objective construction of reality as we are in the one based on metaphysical and spiritual precepts. However, given our level of consciousness at this time, we still tend, in ordinary everyday life and practical matters, to default to the old paradigm for our construction of reality. This is not dissimilar to how, despite the fact that quantum physics has proven Newtonian physics to be fundamentally flawed, and despite the fact that quantum physics has been around now for more than half a century, we still default to Newtonian physics to help us understand the world in a practical way. It still works for us at that level. I would estimate that we currently default to the old paradigm, at best, probably around 90% of the time. It keeps us grounded in the human experience in the same way that Newtonian physics keeps us grounded in everyday practical affairs. Only rarely do we reference quantum physics in our daily lives, and in the same way, and only very occasionally, are we able to see life from the perspective of the new paradigm. It would be all too easy to criticize ourselves for not being fully into the new paradigm, and then give up the process of transforming ourselves step by step. Or, worse, to kid ourselves that we're already there. We're not. Our consciousness is not evolved enough yet to be fully in it. But we're getting close. The ratio will change dramatically as a result of our mass awakening and transformation. But we must keep working at it. The task is to change, slowly but surely, the ratio between our being predominantly more in one or in the other, and to arrive at the point where we can comfortably be in both at the same time. And it's not a case of waiting passively for this to happen. The tools of radical forgiveness provide the opportunity to actually practice it. As you use the tools, you are in effect faking it until you make it. But as we've already seen, since belief is not required, faking it will be very effective. You will actually experience being in the new paradigm. Faking it when using the tools of radical forgiveness enables us to suspend our normal way of thinking about life and to be open to the new paradigm, even before we fully understand it. Each of the tools operates like a bridge between these two realities. They enable us to move freely and easily between them, almost without knowing it. Like anything else, the more we practice something, the less fear we have about it. When the time comes for us to make the shift complete, we'll be so accustomed to being in the vibration of the love-based reality through using the tools that our fears about making the final leap will have evaporated. How long the transformation is going to take 
is anyone's guess. Obviously, it will vary from individual to individual, but to a large extent, it will depend on how committed people are to using the tools that are available. Remember, the tools are designed not only to give us practice in being in the vibration of the metaphysical paradigm, but to progressively and permanently raise our vibration to where we won't need them anymore. By that time, our transformation will be complete and we will be fully empowered at all levels. So, that said, let's try one of those tools right now. I would like to suggest that I take you through the 13 steps to radical forgiveness. This is an audio process which, in effect, is very similar to doing a worksheet, except that you're using your hearing sense to mediate the experience and to activate your spiritual intelligence, and using your voice to integrate the full meaning of what you hear into your psyche. The way this works is that I will invite you to bring to mind something that is upsetting you now, or something that upset you in the past, but you still have energy on it. I'll give you about 30 seconds to run it through your mind, giving yourself free reign to be the complete victim about it. You don't make excuses or show compassion at this point in the process. You just think of how you are or were damaged by this person and how you feel about it. I will then give you time to feel your feelings about it and to feel where the energy is in your body. Once you've done that, I will ask you a series of questions to which the answer is yes to all of them. It really is that simple, but you do need to answer yes in a loud, clear voice so that you move the energy out through the throat chakra. That's where we usually get energy stuck, so do give it voice. It only takes about eight minutes, and you can do it with your eyes open or closed. You can even do it in the car, just so long as you keep your attention on the road, of course. So, if you're ready to do it now, let's begin. Steps to Radical Forgiveness Step number one. Describe the situation as you see it, in as concise a way as possible, allowing the feelings associated with this story to come to the surface. Now, if you are doing this alone, simply run it all through your mind. I will allow a few moments to elapse as you mentally review the situation. Step number two. As you get in touch with the intense feelings you have around this situation, you might become aware of the place in your body where the emotions seem to be most located. If you can, Put your hand on that place. Step number three. Just take a moment and let the feelings come up to be expressed if they need to. If you feel the need to scream or shout, go ahead. But do it into a pillow if you feel you might be heard. Don't judge or resist your feelings. Just let them be what they are. Now listen to the following questions and give your response in a loud, clear voice. Step number four. Even if you don't understand how or why, are you willing to be open to the possibility that the situation may be purposeful and that your higher self has created the situation for your spiritual growth? Good. 
Step number five. Do you realize that your upset is a direct reflection of something that needs to be healed, and that even if you cannot see it yet, the healing message is contained in the situation? Yes. Step number six. Are you willing to release your need to judge the situation as either right or wrong, good or bad? Even if you cannot explain how or why, can you simply allow the situation to be perfect, just the way it is? Step number seven. Can you be open to the idea that you only get upset when someone resonates in you, something about you that you have denied, repressed, and projected onto them? And that what is upsetting you about the other person represents a part of you that is crying out to be loved and accepted. Step number eight. Even if you have no idea what that part of you is that you have disowned, are you willing to unconditionally love and accept that part of you right now, in this moment? Perhaps you can feel your heart opening now to that part of you that you have rejected. If so, welcome it back, embrace it, and love it unconditionally right now. Step number nine. Are you willing to be open to the idea that you attracted this person or situation into your life? and that subconsciously you are both receiving exactly what you have both needed, enabling each of you to let go of your addiction to being a victim so you can reconnect with your true nature and access the power within you? Good. Step number 10. Do you recognize that in forgiving them, you have forgiven yourself? Step number 11. When the feelings that you had at the beginning have begun to subside, nod your head yes to confirm that this has happened and that you are now beginning to feel the divine love behind the apparent situation. Good. Step number 12. Nod your head yes when the story that was attached to those feelings has lost some or most of its charge. Or maybe you can't even remember what it was. Step number 13. Forgiveness, being always a change in perception and a shift in energy, you may now begin to feel this occurring within you. Notice any sensation in your body that confirms that this is happening. It is through taking your attention away from the story that you had previously given your power to and focusing instead on the truth, that the release occurs. Nod your head yes as you feel this happening and as you connect to the truth of who you are. So this is the end of the 13 steps process. Take a few deep breaths and do whatever else you need to ground yourself fully. Well, now you've experienced the 13 steps, I think it would be a good idea for me to go over the Radical Forgiveness Worksheet with you. We are going to be talking about it in the subsequent sessions on this program, so I think a fairly short 
preview of this is going to be helpful to you. You can either download this from my website, www.radicalforgiveness.com, or you can take it off of the CD that is part of the program that includes the worksheet. I'd like you to have it in front of you and to think of an issue that you might want to forgive. And as we go through the worksheet, maybe have your finger on the pause button so that any time that you feel you need to write something in the boxes on the worksheet or check one of the little boxes, that you have time to think about it. So let's have a look at the worksheet itself now. I first thought of a worksheet as being something that would help people marshal their ideas and get clear about what it is that they wanted to do. But it became much more than that, and I didn't realize that it would at first. When we do the worksheet, we're actually asking our own spiritual intelligence to take care of the forgiveness process, because really it's beyond our ability from a mental point of view. This is not a mental exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. And when we do the worksheet, we're simply asking for help to move energy and to change the energy around a particular situation around which we have an grievance. And what I would like you to do, actually, is to, as I said before, think of something that you want to forgive and then notice whether there is any difference in how you feel at the end. Okay, so you date the worksheet, you give it a number if you have a tendency to file things. I usually don't. I usually burn my worksheets once they're done. But you put the name of the person or organization or whatever it is that you have agreements with at the top there on the right-hand side. Now, you'll notice that underneath that it says to fully anchor the transformation, speak everything written here and what you write out loud. The reason for that is that your body needs to get involved in this energy movement. And so in order for energy to move through your body, you need to activate your body in some way. And the voice is one of the main points of energy activation. Energy tends to get stuck in the voice area. So speaking it out loud really has a very salutary effect on it because it gives a resonance to the whole thing and your body picks up that resonance. So you read out loud what is on the worksheet and you read out loud what you actually write. So box number one is very simple. It simply asks you to write what it is that you're upset about. And you write it as if you were the total victim. You know nothing about radical forgiveness. You know nothing about spirituality. You just know that you're upset and you need to give voice to it. So you read it out, you say, the situation around which I have an upset is or was, and at that point then you write as much as you need to write, and of course this box is only fairly small, you might need to write more on an additional piece of paper if you can't get it all in this box. But basically you're telling your victim story. Okay, so if you need to pause and write that down, hit the pause button and write your story and then come back when you're ready. I'm going on immediately to 2A, which is also the part of the worksheet where you tell your story. But this time, instead of telling it in the third person, you're going to confront the person directly. Now, often people are a little scared to do this because they've been brought up to feel that they can't really say what they feel to the person. And if it was uh, something that happened to you when you were a child, you definitely couldn't because you would get uh, severely punished if you did. So, Confronting is difficult for some people, but this is your opportunity to actually say exactly why you're upset with this particular person under these circumstances.
So you read it out. You say, I'm upset with you. And you put the person's name in there because, and then you really give it to them like it is with no holds barred. Say anything you want because no one's going to see this worksheet but you. Then in 2B, you put down what it is you're feeling. You're angry, you're feeling sad, or you're feeling resentful, you're feeling murderous. Whatever it is that you're feeling, put it in box number 2B. And don't censor them. If you have any trouble identifying your feelings, ask yourself, am I mad, sad, glad, or afraid? Those are the basic emotions. But over and above that, you can feel abandoned, you can feel jealous, you can feel resentful, and so on. Now, at the beginning of a worksheet, we're coming at it from a point of view of being totally human. So this second part, numbers three and four, is really to acknowledge your own humanness. A lot of people who think they're spiritual somehow feel that being human is not so spiritual, and they try to ignore this part, especially the feeling. So number three is designed to get you to really recognize and accept your feelings. So we read out number three. I lovingly recognize and accept my feelings and judge them no more. I am entitled to my feelings. Now this is the first one where you need to check a box. And you either check willing or I'm open to that possibility or I'm skeptical about it or I'm unwilling to accept it. The truth is it really doesn't matter which of those you check. It's just uh, something for you to just go inside and say, having read that statement, can I really align with it? Is it uh, what I really think or feel? And if you feel skeptical or even unwilling, check it. It doesn't matter. You can't really get it wrong. So number four, I own my feelings. No one can make me feel anything. My feelings are a reflection of how I see the situation. So what this means is that you're taking responsibility for your feelings. Maybe for the first time, because we do have a tendency to say to people, you make me feel angry or you make me feel resentful. No, it is a choice. You are choosing to feel this way and it's okay that you are. It's an empowering step because you are actually taking responsibility for your feelings. And then the second part is acknowledging that your feelings are good feedback. Your feelings are telling you what you see in this situation or how you see the situation because you're reacting to it in a certain way, and therefore it's going to give a pointer to how you think about it as well, because an emotion is a thought attached to a feeling. And so if you notice what your feeling is, then you can ask yourself, well, what is the thought behind what I'm feeling? And that's going to give you a lot of feedback for the rest of the worksheet, actually, when you start to look at what your interpretations are. All right, number five, this is a big one. My discomfort was my signal that I was withholding love from myself and the other person you put their name in by judging, holding expectations, wanting the person to change, and seeing the person as less than perfect. You list the judgments and expectations and behaviors that indicate that you're wanting him, her, or them to change. Now, I want to stress that you're withholding love from yourself and the other person by holding these judgments. And sometimes that's a little difficult to understand. But most of your pain and anguish comes from wanting someone to be different to the way they are or the judgments that you have about them. So it really helps to jot down all the expectations that you actually have towards this person, how you want them to be different 
to the way they are. And whether that's unreasonable or not, some cases it's unreasonable to ask them to be different to the way they are. Even though you have a grievance about it and you've acknowledged that, but when you actually look at it and ask yourself, is that reasonable? Sometimes you don't even know that you have these expectations. So number five is very revealing. It really does help you to see what your judgments are and how much suffering is caused by your judgments and your expectations, some of which are going to be unrealistic. And then look and see how many of these judgments and expectations you're actually making about yourself. Now, up to now, we've really been doing the first two of the five stages of radical forgiveness. The five stages are, and we're going to say much more about this in the session number two, but the five stages are telling the story, feeling the feelings, collapsing the story, reframing the story, and integrating the new story. So at this point in the worksheet, having just done the story and our feelings about it, we're now into stage number three, collapsing the story. This is where we start to take some of the energy out of the story. Okay, so number six. I now realize that in order to feel the experience more deeply, my soul has encouraged me to create a bigger story out of the event or situation than it actually seemed to warrant, considering just the facts. This purpose having been served, I can now release the energy surrounding my story by separating the facts from the interpretations I have made up about it. So it then asks you to list the interpretations and circle the level of emotion and attachment you have around each interpretation. So what you need to do here is to look at your story and ask yourself, what are the very facts of what happened, the raw facts? And then ask yourself, what additional interpretations have I made up about the story or about the event? And so it gives you some space there to indicate what kind of interpretations you might have made up about that event. So let's say, for example, that your issue is with one or both of your parents, and one of your parents died, for instance. So the fact that your parent died is the fact. Your interpretation might have been, as a young child, for instance, that you were abandoned by that parent. So that would have been a, an interpretation that you had made and had become quite important in your life in the sense that it tended to repeat itself over and over by other people abandoning you. So you look at what interpretations that you have made up over and above the facts of the event and jot those down and ask yourself, how much energy do I have around this particular situation now? How much emotion do I have? Is it high? Is it medium, low, or virtually none? In number seven you need to look at what core negative beliefs that came as a result of the story or which drove the story. Now, when you make these interpretations about an event, then these lead often to core negative beliefs. If you felt that you were abandoned when you were a child, it becomes a core negative belief that people will always abandon you. So just check off which one for you seems to be appropriate. There may be three or four in there that seem to work for you. Of course, you don't always know what they are, but you can get a sense of them. And one way to know what they are is to see what keeps turning up in your life. So if, for instance, to keep with our same example, if you find that people do keep on abandoning you, you can feel pretty safe that there is a core negative belief within you that's causing that to happen. And you can 
say to yourself, well, I must have a core negative belief then that I'm always going to be abandoned. Now we're moving on to the next phase, which is phase four, opening up to a reframe. So number eight says, I now realize that my soul encouraged me to form these beliefs in order to magnify my sense of separation so I could feel it more deeply for my spiritual growth. As I now begin to remember the truth of who I am, I give myself permission to let them go, and I now send love and gratitude to myself and the other person for creating this growth experience. Well, if you've understood the new paradigm, then this will make perfect sense to you. Having reached that decision, though, and now that we're awake, we can begin to let these ideas go. So that's where we say, I give myself permission to let them go, and I now send love and gratitude. In other words, the beliefs have served their purpose. They've given you the degree of separation that you signed up for and that you wanted, and so they serve no further purpose, and you might as well now let them go. So returning to our example of abandonment, it's no longer necessary for you to keep on creating more abandonment because you've done that lesson now. It's over. So you can let that belief go. But just by doing it on the worksheet, you're doing a great deal towards that. Now, I've already indicated that we often create patterns in our life through our core negative beliefs. So the next one in number nine is to notice a pattern and see the perfection in it. I recognize that my spiritual intelligence has created stories in the past that are similar in circumstance and feeling to this one in order to magnify the emotional experience of separation that my soul wanted. I am seeing this as evidence that even though I don't know why or how, my soul has created this particular situation too in order that I learn and grow. So list similar stories and feeling experiences as in 2B and note the common elements in them. I've already covered most of that in the idea that if you did have a core negative belief about abandonment, you almost certainly can look along the timeline of your own life and see how you've created these circumstances which are simply a repeat of that first abandonment. When you've done that, then we'll go on over the page and look at item number 10. So I'm going to read these statements through, just one after another. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. Number 10 is, I now realize that I get upset only when someone resonates in me, those parts of me that I have disowned, denied, repressed, and then projected onto them. I now see the truth in the adage, if you spot it, you got it. It's me in the mirror. Number 11, this person is reflecting what I need to love and accept in myself. Thank you for this gift. I'm now willing to take back the projection and own it as part of my shadow. I love and accept this part of me. Number 12, even though I may not understand it, I now realize that you and I have both been receiving exactly what we each had subconsciously chosen and were doing a dance with and for each other to bring us to a state of awakened consciousness. Number 13, I now realize that you, put the person's name in there, has done is either right or wrong. I am able now to release the need to blame you or anyone else. I release the need to be right about this and I'm willing to see the perfection in the situation just the way it is. Okay, so before I go to number 14, let me just say a couple of things about number 10 and 11 in particular. If you see things in other people that you don't like, 
then it's a pretty strong indication that there is a part of you that you don't like too, that is identical to that feature. So if you see somebody that uh, you criticize them for being manipulating, then there's a part of your shadow where you believe that you have a capability to manipulate too, and it's part of you that you hate. So you've repressed it, and then eventually you find someone to project it onto. And I'm sure you're familiar with that idea. But the point I want to make here is this. That mirror is often very distorted. And it's sometimes very difficult to see that that quality is part of you. And a lot of people will say to me, yeah, I can see it for two or three things, but that one, I'm definitely not that. And sometimes it's almost impossible to see exactly what it is in that person that you don't like that's reflective of yourself. So the thing about this is that you don't have to know what it is. If there's something about that person you don't like, it is reflecting something about yourself that you hate in yourself, but you don't always know what it is. Just accept that that's the situation. Whenever you make a judgment about someone, just know that it's a judgment about yourself, and that's all you need to know, and all you need to do to cure that is to check off number 10 and 11. (laughs) on the worksheet. It really is that simple. Sometimes you can see it. You say, yeah, that's a bit of me. I can recognize that. But sometimes you cannot see it at all. And by the way, you don't have to like them. All right, number 14. I'm willing to see that for whatever reason, my mission or soul contract included having experiences like this and that you and I may have agreed to do this dance with and for each other in this lifetime. If it is for the highest good for both of us, I now release you and me from that contract. So this is the idea that before we came in, we had agreements with other souls that they would do certain things for us at certain times in our life, and we would do certain things for them in order to give them the experience of separation that they wanted to have in their lifetime. It really doesn't matter whether you do or don't believe this, but I tend to think that it's uh, reasonable to assume. I'm comfortable with it, but it's not an essential element of this worksheet if you don't. And if you don't, just check I'm willing. Then in box number 15, I release from my consciousness all feelings of, and whatever you put in 2B, you write in there, same thing. Number 16 is the reframe. This is where we shift our energy. The story in box number one was your victim story, based in the old paradigm of reality, victim consciousness. Now attempt a different perception of the same situation a reframe from your new empowered position based on the insights you've experienced as you have proceeded through this worksheet. Now the note says it may simply be a general statement indicating that you just know everything is perfect or a statement that includes things specific to your situation. If that is, you can actually see what the perfection is. Often you cannot. Be careful not to do a reframe that's based in the world of humanity terms and note any possible shift in feeling tone. So basically, it's the same story, but now you're writing it with a different view of it, a different perception, or coming from the new paradigm. Your victim story was based in the old paradigm. This story, same story, but your perception of it now comes from how you see it through the lens of the new paradigm. So, as it indicates here, you can either write it as a very general statement, I now realize that the whole situation was divinely guided and divinely planned, and that everything that has happened to me in these circumstances happened for me, 
and that I now realize that this person came into my life to give me the experience I needed to have, and I give thanks for that experience. It can be as simple as that. Or you might say, I now realize that this person came into my life to give me repeated examples of abandonment so that I would heal that particular issue in my life, that which I had chosen for my mission, if you like, to have in this lifetime. If you've found something in there that's specific to your situation. But basically what you're doing is just giving a very general statement and saying that everything is perfect just the way it is from the new paradigm perspective. 17 and 18 are really important for you to read out loud and really get the resonance of each of these statements because they're really powerful. So let me read it out and you follow with me. Number 17, I completely forgive myself, Colin, and accept myself as a loving, generous, and creative being. I release all need to hold on to emotions and ideas of lack and limitation connected to the past. I withdraw my energy from the past and release all barriers against the love and abundance that I know I have in this moment. I create my life and I am empowered to be myself again, to unconditionally love and support myself just the way I am, in all my power and magnificence. And then going right on to number 18, I now surrender to the higher power I think of as universal intelligence and trust in the knowledge that this situation will continue to unfold perfectly and in accordance with divine guidance and spiritual law. I acknowledge my oneness and feel myself totally reconnected with my source. I am restored to my true nature, which is love, and I now restore love to, and you put the person's name in there, I close my eyes in order to feel the love that flows in my life and to feel the joy that comes when the love is felt and expressed. So I think it helps to just take a few moments of meditation to get in touch with the love that you feel and, and how much your energy has shifted from the beginning of the worksheet until the end. And then in number 19, a note of appreciation and gratitude to you, the person's name. Having done this worksheet, I feel a real deep sense of gratitude for you having been in my life, and I bless you for being part of it. It can be something very short and simple like that. And then you read out the statement at the bottom, I completely forgive you, the person, for I now realize that you did nothing wrong and everything is in divine order. I bless you for being willing to play a part in my awakening. Thank you. And I honor myself for being willing to play a part in your awakening. I acknowledge and accept you just the way you are. And in number 20, a note to yourself, just to really appreciate and honor yourself for doing the worksheet, really. That's basically all you need to do there. And then read out and say, I recognize that I am a spiritual being having a spiritual experience in a human body, and I love and support myself in every aspect of my humanness. Okay, so that's the worksheet. And I just wonder whether you're feeling any different as a result of having done it. But let me say this. Every time you come up against something in life that bothers you or you get upset about, even if it's something really small, just reach for that worksheet. It's amazing how things change when you do them. Now, in session number three, I'm going to show you how you can use this worksheet to forgive events that are beyond yourself, things that happen out there in the world, world events. But in the next segment, following straight on from here, we're going to look at the five stages of radical forgiveness. 
Radical Forgiveness continues with Session 2, The Five Stages of Radical Forgiveness. Okay, so we spent the first session hammering home the idea that radical forgiveness is not just a process, but a way of transforming our worldview. But when we do look at it purely as a process, we notice that radical forgiveness definitely does have a structure, a five-stage structure, in fact, that runs through all the tools that I've created. The five stages of radical forgiveness are as follows. Number one, telling the story. Number two, feeling the feelings, number three, collapsing the story, number four, reframing the story, and number five, integrating the new story. Now, I'm going to flesh out each one of these stages for you. But before I do, I should point out that unless you're working with a radical forgiveness coach, it's unlikely that you will be telling the story to another person. For example, if you're doing a worksheet, you will be telling the story to yourself as you run the situation through your mind, as suggested in step one on the worksheet. You'll also become present to your own feelings in step number two, as they arise in you during your remembrance of the situation over which you're doing the worksheet. It's the same with the 13 steps audio process, which you already have experienced in the first session. The whole thing is done internally. Having said that, though, I think the best way for me to actually explain the five-stage process is to show how it might unfold during a live coaching session when someone comes to me with an issue to work through. I think you'll get a better understanding of the process if I do it this way. So, let's just imagine that it's a female client. That'll save me having to say him or her, his or hers. It'll be more simple that way. Obviously, the first thing the client is going to do when we open up a coaching session is to tell me the story. What has happened in her life in the past that is still vexing to her? And, if it's still continuing today, what is actually occurring to make her feel so upset? In other words, what is it that she wants to forgive? Now, the first thing I should explain is that a radical forgiveness coach or a psychotherapist using radical forgiveness therapy will listen to the client's story with a very different ear than would a traditional psychotherapist or even a life coach. What they will be listening for will be very different. Let me explain what I mean. Ordinarily, a traditional therapist will be listening to the story with a problem solver's ear. At the back of his or her mind are the normal questions that doctors, nurses, therapists, counsellors and even friends ask in their own minds whenever someone comes to them with a problem. The first question, 
What's wrong with the person? Secondly, how did they get this way? And thirdly, how can I fix them? This is what we understand to be the normal medical model. What's wrong with them? How did they become so wounded or dysfunctional? And how can I put it right for them? But this is not what a radical forgiveness practitioner will be asking. He or she will have a very different set of questions in mind. The first one will be, what is perfect about what is occurring with this person? Then, the second one, how is the perfection revealing itself? And finally, how can I get the person to see the perfection in the situation? Let me repeat those for you. Number one, what is perfect about what is happening? Number two, how is the perfection revealing itself? And number three, how can I get him or her to see the perfection? Now, at the beginning of the session, my job is to do no more than witness and validate my client's story. She needs to be heard and understood. So, while I listen to my client's victim story with empathy and compassion, and without for one second suggesting there might be a different interpretation, my ear is nevertheless attuned to listening for the clues as to how the perfection in this person's situation is being revealed and what the gift contained in the situation might be. It's vital that I provide the permission, safety and time for her to tell the whole story, as a victim, in its entirety. No making excuses for the perpetrator or giving spiritual interpretations. If she already knows about radical forgiveness, I tell her to put it to one side for the time being. I want her to tell it like it is and to feel the feelings fully. This is every bit as true when you're doing a worksheet on your own. You have to allow yourself to be the victim, totally, without any spiritual overlay. From my point of view as the coach, being able to hear the whole story with all its twists and turns, asides and throwaway comments gives me the opportunity to listen for the vital clues that might indicate what's going on at the spiritual level. That is to say, how the perfection is revealing itself. The second stage is feeling the feelings. Now, this stage is so closely connected with telling the story that you'd think it would simply be part of the first stage. However, it is so important that it warrants being categorized as a stage in its own right. If anyone tries to forgive using a purely mental process, thus denying that they feel angry, sad or depressed, for example, nothing happens. I encourage the client to feel the pain of being victimized and to feel it fully. And you must do the same when you're using the self-help radical forgiveness tools. It is the vital step that many so-called spiritual people want to leave out, thinking that they shouldn't have negative feelings. That's nothing more than denial and misses the crucial point that you cannot heal what you don't feel. The energy attached around a particular issue is emotional energy and it needs to be felt before it can be released. It is also important to realize that as a spiritual being having a human experience, we took on a body precisely so we could have life be a feeling experience. Therefore, we might say, to the extent that we suppress our feelings, we actually deny our primary reason for being here on this planet. 
I call this form of resistance to feeling the feelings doing a spiritual bypass. When we do a spiritual bypass, we go too quickly to a spiritual interpretation and give our feelings over to spirit, thinking that as spiritual people we shouldn't have negative feelings. This is pure avoidance and a way to hide out. People in the helping professions often turn out to be closet bypassers, addicted to helping others while not dealing with their own pain and avoiding their own feelings. And by the way, let me be clear on this point. There is no such thing as a negative feeling. Feelings such as fear, anger, sadness or grief are normal human emotions that we all feel from time to time to varying degrees. Labeling them as negative results in people struggling against them, trying to think positive or denying them. This only leads people to suppress, repress and project them onto others or onto their own bodies or onto situations. Resistance to any of our human emotions creates serious internal stress and ultimately causes disease. For example, there is a very strong and proven link between cancer and a tendency to repress emotions. When people allow themselves to feel, that's when they show up as fully human and powerful. When people access their pain, this is the beginning of their healing, and it usually occurs quite naturally in the telling of the story when in the presence of a compassionate but non-judgmental listener. Sometimes, of course, that listener is yourself, as when you're doing a worksheet, for example. Returning to our earlier discussion about paradigms and why we are here on this planet, we could argue that the only reason we've chosen this human experience arises from the fact that this is the only planet carrying the vibration of emotional energy, and that we have come here precisely to experience it, as I mentioned a moment ago. Consequently, when we don't allow ourselves to experience the full range of emotions and suppress them instead, our spiritual intelligence gets to work creating situations in which we are literally forced to feel them. I have noticed it to be a common experience that people often seem to be given opportunities to feel intense emotions just after having prayed for spiritual growth. There's that part of you that has wisdom enough to know that your spiritual health depends on you being able to feel the experience of being in a human body. But let me put your mind at rest here. As far as radical forgiveness is concerned, feeling the feelings does not necessarily mean digging up the past and going over all the old pain and resentments ad nauseum. No, this is not necessary at all, and the fear of doing this is what often keeps people away from therapy in general and radical forgiveness in particular. In radical forgiveness, we simply work with whatever is upsetting us now, knowing that in all likelihood, it represents all the other similar situations that have occurred previously that we have come to recognize as a repeating pattern in our lives. Indeed, in many cases, it might be an upset that seems in itself to be quite insignificant that can provide the actual catalyst for healing the whole pattern. The clue I watch for is when a client is apparently having a very strong emotional reaction to some situation that is quite out of proportion to the actual seriousness of the event. What this indicates is that the presenting story is representing all the other times something like this has happened in the past. 
when I help the person forgive that small event, I'm really helping her forgive every other one within that same pattern as well, including the original one. And that's because all the situations in the past and the one we might be working on in the moment are held together by the same energy field. Collapse one, and you collapse them all. Let me give you an example here, because this is such an important thing to get. Let's say you have a wound deep down inside that began by you, for some reason, feeling abandoned as a child. The energy attached to that wound has remained active and at certain points in your life has produced other situations where abandonment was the main issue, creating what you might now recognize as that repeating pattern, people always leaving. Then, let's say you have a lunch appointment with a friend and he or she fails to turn up, and you go ballistic, responding emotionally in a way that is out of all proportion to what happened. Now, our normal assessment of such behavior is likely to be that we are being stupid, overreactive, and overemotional. However, what we might miss by judging it in this way is that your reaction was not actually about the person not turning up for the lunch appointment. It was about all the times when you have felt abandoned in the past. So what this actually represented then was an opportunity, self-created, by the way, by your own spiritual intelligence, to heal the entire pattern of abandonment, all the way back to the original wound. So here's the point I want you to get. If you find yourself emotionally reacting to an event in quite a disproportionate way to a seemingly small event, then do a worksheet right away. It could quite literally change your whole life because it would collapse the energy field holding that abandonment pattern together. Which brings me now to stage number three, collapsing the story. What I have just described in that example is all part of this stage in actual fact. It's all about collapsing the story and the energy field holding it in place, not only in the mind, but in the body too. Your stories literally live in every cell of your body as little packets of energy. And what we're doing with radical forgiveness is dissolving those packets and replacing the story with a new one. But I'm getting ahead of myself, really, because replacing the story with a new one is what stage number four is all about. When we collapse the story, we begin to take the power away from the victim story by bringing the client to an awareness that there might be much more to it than meets the eye, and that there may well be a different interpretation of what happened. It's at this stage that the perfection may begin, at least, to reveal itself. So, to get back to what I am doing with my client here, my role in helping her come to this awareness is to ask myself the right questions as I listen to the story. I'm looking to find things like those significant patterns I just spoke about, synchronicities, oddities, and other factors, that offer some kind of evidence that this situation is not just a random event without meaning or purpose, but is at least suggesting a certain perfection, and that there may be more to it than meets the eye. The client might also begin to see how she had constructed her story on pure interpretation, often formed when she was very young and very egocentric, and made assumptions that simply were not true or that she had been holding expectations of herself or others that could never be met. 
There is a question on the Radical Forgiveness Worksheet that goes something like this. My discomfort is my signal that I am withholding love from myself and others by judging, holding expectations, wanting the people to be different, and seeing them as less than perfect. It is surprising how much pain is simply the direct result of expecting someone to be different from the way they are, or wanting them to behave in a certain way. The most extreme version of this is demanding that our parents love us. But what if our parents are so wounded themselves that they are incapable of love? Or that they didn't want children in the first place and feel trapped in a way of life that is not their dream? Or that they are so stressed out that they don't have energy for loving their children in the way that they want to be loved? There may be lots of reasons why our parents act as if they don't love us. A story I hear all the time is the one about being abandoned by one of the parents, usually the father. Marriages often break down when children are young, and it's usually the father who leaves the family unit. Because children are so egocentric, they automatically think it's about them. They immediately make it up that it was their fault that the father left. Out of that come other interpretations that feed on themselves. If my father left me because of me, I must be unlovable. Or, if my father doesn't love me, no man will ever love me. If I love someone, they will always leave me. It is therefore too risky to love anyone. And so the story builds and becomes a whole series of strongly held subconscious beliefs that run their lives like a whole series of internal gyroscopes. Other stories form around the periphery of the core story and each of them play out in some form or another as their experience of life. You could say that life is often nothing more than the outpicturing of our stories, especially those that we formed when we were very young. Anyway, hopefully my client will begin to see some things in the story that will lead her to realize that the majority of her story is not true, thereby collapsing her own victim story and the energy field holding it together. She will begin to open up to the possibility that the situations she has created over and over again are simply reflections of her own consciousness and an outplaying of her false beliefs. Then she might see that each time it has occurred, it was an opportunity to heal a misperception. In order to facilitate this, I use a tool called the Forgiveness Centrifuge. This helps my client separate what actually happened from her interpretation of the event. She will quickly realize that the list of interpretations is many times longer than the list of facts. That in itself takes a tremendous amount of charge out of the story and collapses it down to a size more consistent with the reality of the event. She will see that her spiritual intelligence was giving her a chance to let those core negative beliefs go and to make some new choices about life. As well as helping my client discover her core negative beliefs, I may also bring her attention to other possible opportunities being offered from within the situation or by the people involved. For example, it might be something she has rejected, denied and repressed about herself that is being mirrored back to her, something that is crying out from within her to be loved and accepted. That being the case, I might need to explain the concept of projection to her. The idea 
is that while projection begins as a basic defense mechanism, we can use it as one of the main ways to achieve self-forgiveness and ultimately to find love and acceptance for ourselves. Let me explain. As a defense mechanism, projection allows us to imagine that we become free of our subconscious guilt, shame and self-hatred when we project it onto other people and make them wrong for it. We all do it, and we do it automatically, and without awareness, of course. In so doing, we fool ourselves into thinking that we don't have that quality in ourselves anymore. So, we become very self-righteous and judgmental towards such people for having those faults. This defense mechanism protects us from having to confront what Carl Jung called our shadow. In order to avoid coming face to face with our own shadow, we have dumped all our shame and self-hatred deep down into the unconscious mind and have forgotten it, hoping never to see it again. But we're always fearful that it might come to the surface again at some point and be revealed. We would be discovered, and that's a terrible thought. So, just to be safe, we project it all onto other people and make it all about them. We criticize them for it and make them our scapegoats, and for the moment, all seems well. But of course, we were kidding ourselves the whole time. The self-hatred hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there within us, and sooner or later, and especially when the time comes for us to awaken to our spiritual selves, it will demand to be attended to. That's because, as we grow spiritually and begin the awakening process, we feel a strong desire for wholeness. We want to become whole. We want to embrace our authentic selves and be fully who we are. It's no longer tolerable to deny half of ourselves and to be split into two. Inevitably, then, our shadow side begins to clamor for recognition and acceptance. And it meets our resistance head-on by employing our spiritual intelligence to bring us a lot of people on whom to project all aspects of our shadow, in the hope that we will come to the realization that we are in fact looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves reflected in them. So here's where I would explain to my client that what she finds so objectionable in the person she's complaining about might well be a part of herself that she has denied, repressed, and projected onto him or her and is crying out to be loved. And that all she needs to do in order to bring the projection back to herself and love that part of herself unconditionally is to do the radical forgiveness worksheet on that person. And the interesting thing is that she would never need to know what it was that was being reflected. The radical forgiveness worksheet simply takes care of it. In forgiving him or her, she forgives herself and lovingly accepts that part that she had previously despised. In this way, she becomes whole again. If you were to look at the Radical Forgiveness Worksheet and go down to item numbers 10 and 11, you'd see the part of the worksheet that helps people complete this process. Item number 10 goes like this, and you'd say it out loud. I now realize that I only get upset when someone resonates in me those parts of me that I have disowned, denied, repressed and projected onto them. I now see the truth in the adage, if you spot it, you got it. It's me in the mirror. And then following on, number 11. 
This person, and you'd put the person's name in here, is reflecting what I need to love and accept in myself. Thank you, put the person's name in again, for this gift. I'm now willing to take back the projection and own it as part of my shadow. I love and accept this part of me. That's all anyone needs to do. Really. No analysis. No trying to figure out what the projection actually was. It's not always easy to see. You just declare that the person is mirroring back to you what you need to love in yourself, give thanks to the person in your mind for doing this for you, and that's it. And by the way, in order to forgive the person, there's no requirement that you have to like him or her. The forgiveness is a soul-to-soul transaction. It's not a personality thing. However, it often does happen that once having done a worksheet on someone, you find yourself warming towards them somewhat. Another interesting aspect of becoming open to a spiritual interpretation that I would explore with my client is the idea that we all come into the life experience with a mission or soul agreement or spiritual purpose to fulfill. This might include not only going through seemingly painful experiences, but dying even. There is also the possibility, which I personally feel is highly likely, that prior to our incarnation, we contract with other souls to give us specific experiences that will support our plan for our life. For example, if I wish to experience the pain of being betrayed, perhaps in order that I balance out some karma from a previous life, I might ask a soul to come into my life at some point, build up a strong sense of trust with me, and then let me down in a very serious way so I could really feel the pain of it. Or I might ask a soul to be an abusive parent for me, so I can feel the pain of rejection as a young child, and then ask some other souls to abuse me again when I become an adult. Whatever I asked for would all depend on how I wanted my divine plan to play out and what purpose I had for my soul's journey. A good example of this is Jesus and Judas. Without Judas being willing to betray him, Jesus would not have been able to fulfill his mission of dying on the cross in order to demonstrate forgiveness. Another thing I look for as people tell their story is the extent to which they may be carrying someone else's pain and living out their story for them, usually that of one or both parents. Being sensitive and present to their parents' stress within the family situation, many children take on their parents' pain and live out their parents' stories as if they were their own. I find this to be quite common. However, this is not just restricted to parents. It can often be the pain of a sibling or a grandparent, or it may even be generational pain carried forward in the genes from one generation to the next, up to seven generations deep, that a person might be carrying, quite unconsciously, of course. I also find that many people have unresolved grief around the death of one or more of their grandparents. Where there is a pattern of empathic failure between parent and child, the child often finds the love they need from their grandparents. When they die, the child feels abandoned, alone and vulnerable. It's usually their first experience of death and it can be traumatic. But they are seldom allowed to feel the grief. It is repressed and can turn to rage. If a grandparent dies when the child is, say, six, 
I look for a pattern of life falling apart every six years or so. The underlying story will be that, quote, what is stable in my life will collapse after six years, close quote. Even though I've been leading my client gently towards a reframe, which as you know is stage four, all of what I've been doing up to now comes under stage three, collapsing the story. I will have been looking for clues as to how the perfection might possibly be revealing itself and leading her in the direction of becoming open to the possibility that there might be a different interpretation of her story, bearing in mind all the synchronicities and connections that have been revealed within the story. Becoming open to the idea, there is much more to this than meets the eye, if you will. At the same time, she will probably be noticing that many of her expectations for the person were quite unreasonable and her judgments unjust. As a result, she might also have been able to bring a lot of empathy, compassion, understanding and mercy into the situation and to feel less antagonistic towards the person. She might even begin to see that had she been in that person's shoes, she might have done the same thing or behaved in a similar way. So, in many ways, all that we do in stages 1, 2 and 3 are more or less what might be done with traditional forgiveness. But this is where it would stop. It can go no further. It cannot go to the next step, which is the radical forgiveness step, in which we come to recognize that nothing wrong ever happened and that there is nothing to forgive. This, then, is stage four, the radical forgiveness reframe. I have to say that a lot of people have trouble with this idea of the reframe. Rather than seeing the spiritual perfection in the situation, they will give some explanation of it in world of humanity terms, such as what they learned from it about their life or the benefits that accrued from a decision they made, and so on. Those are not invalid interpretations, of course, and they might come into the category of gifts, but they do not necessarily indicate a grasp of the spiritual perfection that was the underlying purpose of the situation which is, of course, what we're looking for in the reframe. Remember how it worked with the three stages of a paradigm shift? In stage two, we're always trying to use the language of the old paradigm to explain the new. Well, that's what we would be doing here, trying to explain the unexplainable by referencing it to something that is of this world, not the world of spirit. It is natural, of course, that the client's original story will have been framed by all the thoughts, preconceptions and beliefs belonging to the old, default paradigm. We always refer to that when we're hurt or upset. I call it victim land. And once we go there, it's kind of hard to escape, because we tend to forget all about the new paradigm and radical forgiveness. It's my job, though, to rescue my client from victim land and get her to see the situation from the point of view of the new paradigm. That's the reframe. It's literally putting a new frame around the same old story. For example, where before the old story would be framed with ideas, thoughts and feelings connected with the victim land perspective, the new frame would be composed of ideas like oneness, harmony, love, giving and receiving, mission, life purpose and so on. So, in effect, the reframe is a way of trying on the new paradigm, of feeling out what it might be like to adopt the new ideas. 
In that sense, radical forgiveness is a fake-it-till-you-make-it proposition. We literally ask the person to imagine framing their situation with the new paradigm just to see how it feels. We're not seeking to change the situation itself, but trying out a different perception of it. This is when the light bulbs go on and the transformation occurs. At that point, there's no turning back. The game's up. Once I get my client to this point, she will at least be open to the possibility that what happened, far from being tragic, was in fact exactly what her soul had wanted to experience and that it was absolutely essential to her soul's spiritual growth. And furthermore, that the people involved were healing angels for her. If she can see that, I might then be able to get her to see that nothing wrong ever happened and therefore there is nothing to forgive. This is often very difficult for a client to accept, but the good thing about it is that it does not require that they see why it was perfect or that they must get the lesson involved. It is nearly always beyond our ability to comprehend it anyway, so it's a waste of time trying to figure it all out. Willingness is all that's required. She just has to be willing to be open to the idea that there is a perfection in it somewhere and then choose peace. It really is that simple. The worksheet or the 13 steps is the means to express that willingness and in the end, that is all she would really need to do. As soon as the willingness is expressed, which is the essence of the technology, energy begins moving and everything gets taken care of anyway. However, it is important to realize that we have not failed if we didn't come up with some kind of rational description of the perfection. More often than not, we don't. The technology works anyway. That's the beauty of it. We might get clues, and occasionally these can give us ahas, which can be part of the reframe. Sometimes we might see some kind of lesson in the situation too, and that's fine. But it matters not if there is no real ahas to put into the reframe or an awareness of what lesson was contained in the situation. It is sufficient simply to write a reframe that's very general and non-specific. Here's an example. I now realize that my pain and suffering was the result of my not realizing that what seemed to be happening to me was actually happening for me, and that John was simply mirroring for me something about me that I need to love and accept in myself, even though I do not know at this time what this is but I am willing to love it anyway, whatever it is. I now realize that I somehow created this situation and that John was responding to my call for healing and was therefore my healing angel. So, even though we have said that radical forgiveness represents a dramatic shift in the way that we see the world and ourselves in it, we are only at the very beginning of that shift. None of us are anywhere even close to having it integrated into the ground of our being. Reframing our stories, therefore, represents our attempts to practice being in the new paradigm, while at the same time acknowledging that we're not there yet. We're not yet privy to the big picture. In other words, we're still faking it, at best, and we need to accept that that's okay. So now, stage number five, the integration phase. This occurs when the client has reached the point of being able to reframe the situation somehow. At this point, it's necessary to integrate that change at the cellular level. That means integrating it into the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual bodies so it becomes part of who we are. 
I liken it to saving what you've done on a computer to the hard drive. Only then will it become permanent. Our stories live in every cell of our bodies, so having made up a new one in place of the old victim story, we need to anchor it well and truly into all of our bodies. This can be done by a few minutes of breathwork, or by writing, drawing, dancing, or walking with the story. What does seem to be essential also is using the voice, since this is where our energy gets stuck the most, that is, in the throat chakra. So when doing the forgiveness worksheet, it is necessary to read the questions and statements out loud, even when you're doing a worksheet at home on your own. Okay, so what I would like to do now is to demonstrate another radical forgiveness tool which I have found to be extremely powerful, and that is the three letters process. It involves writing three separate letters, ideally one per day, to the person, persons or organization you feel have wronged you in some way. While it certainly works great when you're really upset about something that's just happened, It'll work just as well on something that may have happened a long time ago, even if the person is dead or nowhere around. But let me stress something very important here before going any further. None of the three letters that you write in this process should ever be sent. Never, never, never. (laughs) The best thing is to complete all three and then soon afterwards burn them. Since by the time you've written the last one, the energy shift will have taken place, there's no point in keeping them after that anyway. Inasmuch as each of the three letters relate to the five stages, the first one includes stages one and two. The second letter relates very specifically to stage three, which is collapsing the story, and the third one covers stage four, reframing the story. The physical process of writing the letters provides the integration as in stage 5. I'll describe the nature of each letter, then I will demonstrate them for you using a story from my own life. The purpose of this letter is pretty obvious and should be quite easy to write. It is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's your victim story in all its detail with nothing held back. It's a confrontive, accusatory letter directed to your victimizer, telling him or her how you have been damaged, wounded, hurt, and injured by him or her. You make no excuses for the person and show no mercy, understanding, or compassion whatsoever. All you know is that you are the victim in this situation, and that's what you're writing about. The task at hand is to vent all your anger and rage in this letter, holding nothing back. You can threaten vengeance of the vilest kind if needs be. You just keep writing until you have nothing left to say. The idea is to get everything out, and I mean everything. It might take many pages, and it's very likely to bring up a lot of emotion. You might feel rage, resentment, sadness, anger, grief, and so on. Do everything you can to stay present to your feelings and express them in any way you can. Scream your anger into a cushion or pillow or do some physical activity to keep the energy moving through. If you have been victimized in some way by someone, I doubt that you would have too much trouble writing such a letter. However, some people will avoid this stage or skate over it superficially for a number of reasons, the main one being that they're terrified of their own feelings. 
They're scared that if they give full rein to their emotions, especially anger, they will lose control. Men especially have this fear. Their strategy is to stay in their heads and rationalize everything. Others use the spiritual bypass as a way to avoid their emotions. So it's important that we allow ourselves to feel the emotions tied up in the situation, and that's because radical forgiveness works not by solving what appears on the surface to be the problem, but by dissolving the pattern of emotional energy holding it together. It was emotional energy that caused the pattern to form at the time of the trauma, so it makes sense that we have to touch into that energy in order to release it. So that's the first letter. Remember, though, under no circumstances mail this letter. Now let's talk about letter number two, because this is a much more difficult one to write. It is best done the next day, after you've cooled down somewhat and slept on it. It's always good to allow a dream cycle to occur between each letter, so that each one can be processed by the subconscious mind. This letter begins the process of collapsing the victim story and retrieving the energy invested in it. It is where we begin to realize that while the pain is in what actually happened, the suffering is in what we have made up as our story. There's nearly always a huge difference, and there is usually a lot more suffering than there is pain. Writing this letter should begin to help you sort out what is true versus what you imagine was true, or that which was your interpretation. In that sense, a part of this letter might become something of a dialogue with yourself about what happened, as if you were musing about the whole thing, trying to make some sense out of it. This in itself will help to begin to collapse the energy field around the situation or event. Towards your victimizer, you might begin to sound a little more conciliatory. Your writing might carry a little less anger and vengeance, although you still do not let the person with whom you're angry off the hook for what you believe he or she has done to you. Remember, this is still basically traditional forgiveness at this point. Nevertheless, it's in this letter that you begin to cut the person some slack and begin to imagine what might have made the person do this to you. You might make some effort to walk in their shoes for a while in order to develop some understanding of what made them do it. For example, people who have themselves been wounded are likely to act out their repressed rage on someone else. People who abuse children are nearly always people who were themselves abused as children. People who were abandoned as children are likely to abandon others later in life, and so on. In this letter, you should make an effort to bring some compassion, understanding, mercy, and generosity, as well as the possibility of some sort of forgiveness into the equation, even if you're not actually experiencing it. And again, bear in mind that since the belief is still intact that you have been victimized by this person, it can only be forgiveness of the traditional kind. It's not yet radical forgiveness. That only comes in step four and the third letter. I would now like to share my own experience of moving through this in my first marriage. My wife Jean, who is now deceased, and I had been married for six years. And at that time, I was studying full-time for my degree at university. During my summer vacation, I agreed to be at home to take care of our three children while Jean went back to work for the duration. Well, she fell in love with the guy. And, I came to find out later, 
had sex with him on our seventh wedding anniversary. Now, as you can imagine, I was furious and played the victim up to the hilt. Months later, when we were able to have a sensible discussion about the whole episode, I came to understand what had happened and began to see it from her point of view. It turned out that she had become totally and irrationally besotted by this man. Needless to say, he was married and had no intentions of taking it any further. So besotted was she, though, that she told me that she would have done anything for him, including leaving her children. Now, believe me, no one loved and cherished her children more than she. But here she was telling me that she was so out of control emotionally that she contemplated doing the unthinkable. That really got my attention, and I began to forget my own pain and started to feel compassion for her. She was not promiscuous or irresponsible, so the fact that this had happened was something quite out of the ordinary for her, to say the least. In retrospect, she realized the guy just used her for a little extramarital sex on the side, but she didn't see it that way at the time. She had fantasized all sorts of scenarios with him. What I came to understand was that she was literally out of her mind with what she thought at the time was love. She had absolutely zero control over her emotions and was being totally controlled by them. She was completely bowled over by him and I realized that there was nothing she could have done about it. She had never experienced such intense emotion either before or since. At the same time as she was experiencing this ecstasy, she was feeling confused and guilt-ridden. When it was all over, and she returned to her senses and saw how close she had come to ruining her life and hurting her children, she was devastated and deeply ashamed. As I said, I started out angry, hurt and victimized, but as I came to see what actually happened, as opposed to how I thought it had happened, I began to feel sorry for her because of the pain that she had suffered as a consequence. But I also found myself envying her experience. How many of us really get to feel anything at that level of intensity? How many of us go through life having never really felt passionate about anything? Or never really felt love to that degree? She certainly hadn't up to that point, and neither had I. For a brief time in her life she had experienced the full range of her potential to feel emotion. While it lasted, she had been fully alive. Part of me wanted that kind of experience. Up to then, my life had been rather blah. But while I was all tied up in victim land about what had happened, I had made it up that it was all about me and the kids. I had made up a story in my mind about how she must have done it just to hurt me and to punish me for all that was not good in the marriage. I blamed her for everything and made her wrong as a wife and a mother. I expanded the story in my mind and imagined all sorts of things that never actually happened. I beat myself up for being a weak and feckless husband. Otherwise, why else would she have gone looking out for someone else? I made it up that I was sexually inadequate, especially when she told me that the only time she felt satisfied was with him. I felt like a sexual cripple and felt certain I'd never be able to satisfy a woman. So... Not only in this second letter do we begin to exercise understanding, compassion, mercy and empathy, but we're also exercised to sort out what actually happened as opposed to our interpretation of what happened. In my case, what was true 
was that my wife had an affair with a married man while at work. My interpretations of this fact were, she was a whore, she did it to punish me for being less than a good husband, I'm sexually inadequate and never be any good, she has no love for me and obviously wanted a way out of the marriage, she purposely chose our wedding anniversary just to hurt me, and I'm not capable of feeling real love for anyone. It's a long time ago, and I have forgotten most of what I was thinking, but those would have been included in my victim story, I'm sure. They are typical of how we add suffering to our pain when we feel victimized. The suffering comes not so much in what happened as in the meaning we attach to what happened. Why do we do that? Well, to be a little metaphysical again, perhaps we do it because we need to leverage the original pain in order to get the most we can out of that one situation. Separation is what we come into experience, remember? If we didn't magnify the situation with additional suffering, we'd have to create many more of them just to get enough experience of separation. This way, it's more economical. With the second letter, we begin reducing the suffering by stripping away all the interpretations that were never true anyway. This is not the radical forgiveness stage, but at least it reduces the story to what actually happened and collapses much of the energy that was tied up in those interpretations. So, let me demonstrate the process by doing one of these letters to my wife, since I have told you that story. I think it's worth doing because I find that people have the most difficulty writing the second letter. Dear Jean, I am still feeling a lot of pain and hurt about the fact that you cheated on me and had an affair with a married man, especially that you had sex with him on our wedding anniversary, which really hurt. I felt very betrayed and I couldn't help thinking that you did it to punish me. But since our conversation, I am now realizing that you didn't do it out of any malice towards me and had no intention whatsoever to go out and find someone to have an affair with, even though I said you did. I know that it's not you, and it's not in your nature to be cruel and inconsiderate. I realize now that I took on a lot of negative feelings about myself that I blamed you for creating, but I know now that they're not true. I can see that you were totally controlled by your feelings and were unable to think clearly or rationalize what you were doing, and that your feelings were so intense that you were more or less temporarily out of your mind. The very fact that you admitted that you were so irrational that you would have left the kids and gone with him tells me that. This is so out of character for you because you are so devoted to our kids. But it was also beyond your own previous experience to have such an intense emotional experience and I can therefore understand how it would have knocked you off your feet and created such turmoil in you that you hardly knew what reality was. You were in such a state of confusion, poor thing. It must have been terrible for you in spite of the moments of ecstasy. And then, when he took off and left you with nothing but your guilt and shame, that must have been awful. But you must also see how much it hurt me and made me feel worthless and no good. I need you to take responsibility for that because the fact is you did what you did and it was a betrayal no matter how you justify it. I'm willing to take you back into my life but I don't know that I could ever trust you again. How could I ever trust you after what you did? I think you get the point. In this letter, I'm still feeling like a victim 
and making her responsible for my lack of trust and for my pain, which I'm not ready to give up at this point. However, I'm willing to see how it was for her, and in a sense, to make excuses for her, because I can understand how it happened. I'm also beginning to sort out what was true about the situation and what were my interpretations. So let me now go on immediately to the third letter, which is where I begin to transition from traditional forgiveness to radical forgiveness. I'll say more about it afterwards. I want you to get the feel of it, though, first. Dear Jean, I now realize that you and I were doing a divine dance together as two souls supporting each other in the fulfillment of our desire to experience the pain of separation in a variety of forms. In sharing so much about how you felt badly rejected and betrayed by the man you were in love with, and the guilt and shame you felt subsequently about betraying me, I can only imagine that those were the emotional qualities that you had chosen to experience at that particular time in your life. I realize that you made that choice probably before we incarnated, and I, as a member of your soul group, agreed to be the one who would get hurt. This was not just to help you, I hasten to add. My soul wanted to have the experience of being humiliated and betrayed, so I enrolled your soul to provide that opportunity for my spiritual growth and soul's evolution. So, it was clearly a mutually beneficial agreement, and you and I played it out to perfection. We were healing angels for each other. It was early on in my incarnation and I was extremely insecure about my sexuality and very vulnerable, so your timing was impeccable. It took me to exactly where my soul wanted to go, into the awful pain of jealousy, anger, resentment, sadness and shame. The experience you gave me accelerated my healing and growth, which in turn enabled me to develop the work I'm doing now in this lifetime rather than in a future one. I'm now clear that you did nothing wrong and that it was all part of a divine plan. I'm very grateful for what you were willing to do for me, especially since it caused you a lot of pain and anguish at the human level of experience. You were a blessing in my life at that time. Having completed the agreement we made before incarnating, it became clear to us both that the purpose for our relationship was essentially fulfilled and that it was time to move on. Our children had chosen us as their parents, knowing that this was our contract and that this would provide one of their challenges too. So it was perfect that we should separate at that time and move in different directions. You eventually chose cancer as a way to transition from this vibration into the oneness which I am certain that you are now experiencing to the fullest extent possible, having been given the gift of experiencing its opposite. My soul looks forward to connecting with you again in that world. Love, Colin. So there you have it. That's my reframe. And going right back to where we started with all this, it was my revised interpretation of what happened referencing the new paradigm. My first letter was old paradigm. My third letter was new paradigm. The second letter created the space for the transition. In that third letter, I was writing to the effect that I had come to realize that she was acting out of love by doing what she did, because it was what my soul wanted to experience. I had in fact recruited her to do it for me, not to me. We may even have agreed up front, prior to incarnation, 
that she would provide this experience for me as a sole contract, in other words. So, that's the third letter. It represents the reframe, of course, and removes all blame and recrimination. All that is left is gratitude and awareness of the blessing that this person has given you. But, of course, radical forgiveness is always a fake-it-till-you-make-it proposition, as we've said before. So this letter will almost certainly come into that category. You write it as if you believed it totally, with as much fervor and skill as you did with the previous two letters, because your body needs to get it. Even so, no matter how skeptical you are about this, the likelihood is that you will feel a whole lot better for doing these three letters. And if the situation is still ongoing, the issues creating it will probably become resolved very soon after writing them. You might want to read all three over again, just to feel the shift, and then burn them. Now, to round out this section, let me address some of the most frequently asked questions that people have about radical forgiveness. It is likely that, having heard all that I've said up to now, that some of these questions are floating around in your mind too. So let's see if I can put your mind at rest about some of them. Here's one that often pops up. If there is a divine plan, does this mean that we're just puppets and that we're being controlled from above? What about free will? My answer to this one is that even though we may have set up agreements prior to incarnating and come in with certain prearranged missions and learning experiences, we still have choice as to how we create our experiences, what lessons we choose, and how we create them. We have complete free will to do it however we want to do it, and to find our own way home. However, I do suspect also that we are given help at certain moments along the way, when we look like we're getting into trouble that might interfere with the plan. I can think of two instances in my own life when had it not been for what looked like divine intervention, I would have been killed. But another way to look at this is to think of the divine plan as a highly complex computer program that works a bit like a spreadsheet. You know, the kind of program where you may have all sorts of calculations completed, but if you change one number, it adjusts all the other numbers automatically so that everything balances. Well, that's how it is with your divine plan. Always changing and adjusting, but always coming out right in the end. Okay, here's another one that keeps coming up. If we are saying that whatever someone does to another, it is always perfect and nothing wrong happened, does that mean we can do what we like and then say it's all part of a divine plan? No, of course not. Two things are very important to understand here. First, the perfection is at the spiritual level only. At the human level, of course there is something bad happening, and the perpetrator will pay dearly for his crime. He or she is clearly responsible and accountable for everything that he or she does while in a human body. But, if we could see the bigger picture, which we cannot, we would be able to see why that particular set of circumstances, including the perpetrator being punished for his or her crime, was set up to occur that way. But if we try to get ahead of the game with our ego and justify our actions by saying we do something unpleasant to you because we are a healing angel for you, that would be trying to play God. And it doesn't work, and you'd likely to get a strong lesson to that effect. No, all of this happens below the level of awareness at the soul level. It is totally unconscious. 
Here's another one that pops into most people's minds, including my own at times. Surely there are some things that are so evil that they are just unforgivable. What about Hitler, Stalin, and other genocidal monsters? What about people who rape little children? How can you say it's perfect that a child gets cancer and dies a painful death? I know. I can't get my head around it either, any more than I can explain any of it, really. If forgiveness was no more than extending compassion and understanding, then there really would be a limit for most people, me included. Stalin and Saddam Hussein, who modelled himself on Stalin, were monsters. My only way to deal with this question, though, is to say this: radical forgiveness is an all-or-nothing idea. It either works for everything or nothing. If we can't use it to forgive Stalin, Hitler, or the pedophile down the street, we can't use it to forgive anyone. It's as simple as that. But all I can tell you is that when we're open to that possibility, it seems to work. Suppose the soul who came in to become Adolf Hitler did so with a mission to transform the victim consciousness of the Jewish race and the racial superiority consciousness of the German race. It would take a soul. With an extraordinary amount of love to do that, wouldn't it? Especially when you consider how much negative energy it would have to take on afterwards. You could, in fact, argue that they're still playing this out in Israel today, still playing out their victim consciousness, but at the same time getting to feel what it's like to be the perpetrator. What if Saddam Hussein came in to help American consciousness transform its guilt about slavery and the abuse of its own people? When you look at what America accused Saddam of doing, America has done itself over the years, and you know the principle: what you see in others resonates your own shame about yourself, right? If you spot it, you got it. Remember. So perhaps Saddam really was a healing angel for America. Suppose Slobodan Milosevic came in to enable America to project onto him. The self-hatred it feels about the ethnic cleansing it has perpetrated against the Native American people. Recall, if you can, the TV footage of thousands of Muslim Albanians being thrown out of Kosovo en masse during the Balkans War of the 1990s. Then compare that with accounts of the Trail of Tears, when the whole Cherokee nation was thrown out of its homeland and marched 2,000 miles to a piece of worthless desert, and you will see what I mean. The two events were almost identical. Was Milosevic a healing angel for America then? Did America see it that way? Of course not. We demonized him and failed to heal our shadow. What if the Chinese government had to evade Tibet so that the Dalai Lama would be forced to travel the world and spread his beautiful message beyond the borders of Tibet? Suppose the soul that was Princess Diana. Chose to die in exactly the way she did, and when she did, in order to open the heart chakra of England. Finally, on this topic, even the biblical scholars are saying that without Judas, Jesus could not have completed his mission. Judas was the one who loved him enough to seem to betray him. The fact is that when we begin to realize how little we know, we realize that we know virtually nothing. It's very humbling, but at the same time, very freeing. Here's another interesting question I'm often asked. On the assumption that someone is mirroring something or reflecting a core negative belief of mine, and I forgive that person for doing things to me that I find unacceptable, will that person stop doing it?
The answer is maybe or maybe not. If you have subconsciously enrolled that person to do that for you, and you forgive the person using radical forgiveness, it is possible that he or she will stop the behavior immediately. That's because its purpose has been served. Having healed on that particular hot button, you are no longer calling for it to be mirrored back to you. There would be no point. It wouldn't upset you anymore. On the other hand, the person may need to keep doing it for their own reasons. But since it doesn't upset you anymore, he or she will likely move on to someone else. However, if that doesn't happen and they keep doing it, you may need to move on yourself. No one should stay in an environment that is toxic or dangerous. You can do the forgiveness work from a distance just as well as in close contact. Another caveat to this is that you cannot change someone else. Remember that statement on the Radical Forgiveness Worksheet that went like this? My discomfort is my signal that I'm withholding love from myself and others by judging, holding expectations, wanting X to change, and seeing X as less than perfect? As I said before, this is one of the most difficult parts of the worksheet to really accept, because naturally, if someone is acting in a way that is unacceptable to us, we want him or her to be different or to change. But the fact is, you can only change yourself. Trying to change another person only serves to keep them stuck right where they are. When you do the forgiveness work, you change your energy and that frees the other person to change if they want to. Allowing the person to be just the way they are lets them choose to be different. Another question I often get is whether one should work on forgiving oneself first before trying to forgive someone else. The answer to that one is that it really doesn't matter because all forgiveness is self-forgiveness anyway. When we're forgiving others, we're really forgiving ourselves because we're looking in the mirror. So you can do radical forgiveness on yourself, of course, but on the whole, it's easier to do it by forgiving what is out there rather than trying to figure out what is going on in here. The fact is, most people would agree that it's easier to forgive others than to forgive ourselves. So why not do it that way? Another reason why I suggest focusing on forgiving others is that the kind of people who want to do self-forgiveness first are often addicted to beating themselves up and tend to use self-forgiveness as a way to beat themselves up even more. Here's another question that arises quite often. Do I have to know what the original wound was in order to stop it recreating itself? The answer to this one is quite clear. No, you don't. Whatever is happening now in your life is a reflection of that original wound. It is simply being acted out again in a different form and has come up again to be healed. Forgive that particular event and you not only automatically neutralize the original wound, but all the events where it has cropped up between then and now. So there's no need to know what the original wound was. The reason for this is that all the events along the timeline, which are similar to the original wound, all have the same energy pattern holding them together. So when you do the forgiveness work on any one of them, you are actually dissolving that one energy field. Without the energy field, all the stories along the timeline collapse as one, including, of course, the original wound. People often ask me, how many worksheets does it take before I'm free of the pain? Well, this is one of those how long is a piece of string kind of questions. It all depends. 
Sometimes it only takes one worksheet to dissolve the energy attached to a story. In other cases, it might take quite a few before the energy goes away. However, what I will say is that most people notice an immediate shift after the first one and progressively after that until the energy is all gone. In other words, each time you do a worksheet on the issue at hand, there is a decrease in the energy until in the end there's nothing left. You know when you're done, when you feel no energy left on that story and the person that you were forgiving no longer upsets you. You'll feel quite neutral about it. But let's be clear about one thing here. As I mentioned before, you don't have to like the person to forgive them. Liking someone and forgiving them are two different things, and there's no obligation to like them. By the way, don't forget the other tools available to you in addition to the worksheets. I always suggest using the 13 Steps audio tool in between worksheets. It's quick and you're more likely to do it since all you have to do is listen and say yes to all the questions, especially if you keep it in your car. It's a very potent tool and will help you collapse that energy field more quickly. Another question I get, especially when people get really excited about radical forgiveness and want to share it with others, is how can I get others to accept radical forgiveness, especially those who are resistant to metaphysical ideas? Well, this is a matter of some delicacy. If people are not yet in a place in their spiritual development to hear it, you are wasting your time. They won't be open to it. They have to be ready. So the next question is, how do you know when they're ready? Well, you don't. If you do actually give it to someone, be careful how you do it. Say something like, I found this really helpful in my life and thought you might like it. If it doesn't do anything for you, pass it on. Avoid saying anything that makes them think you're saying that they need it. But most of all, have no attachment to whether they read it or not. Well, that completes my list of frequently asked questions. In the next session, what I will do is to take radical forgiveness to a different level and explore how we might apply this new paradigm thinking to events beyond ourselves, especially those that we hear about on the news and in the media. Radical Forgiveness continues with Session 3, Seeing the Perfection. Okay, so having explained the paradigm shift that radical forgiveness demands and having described how to use the technology for our own personal benefit, what I'd like to do now is to take this to a different level and explore how we might apply new paradigm thinking to events beyond ourselves, especially those that we hear about on the news and in the media. 
When you begin seeing life through the lens of radical forgiveness, you find yourself saying to yourself when you read stories in the newspaper, magazines, books, and TV, I wonder what else is going on here. What might the real story be behind what appears to be happening? Where might the perfection be, and is it revealing itself in any way? What clues are showing up in the situation that might indicate that love is flowing in this situation? In other words, you become a bit of a radical forgiveness detective. For example, round about the time I was recording this, Elizabeth Edwards, the wife of John Edwards, the ex-senator who was one of the three leading contenders for the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 2008, alongside Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, published her book in which she openly discussed her reaction to her husband's notorious infidelity. If I'd known earlier what I had just learned from reading excerpts in Time magazine, I would have gone out and put money on the absolute inevitability of her husband's infidelity. I'm quite certain that John Edwards had no choice in the matter. His soul did it for her healing. So let me explain what I mean by that. It is clear from her own writing that ever since she was 13 years of age, Elizabeth Edwards has been carrying her mother's pain caused by the suspicion of Elizabeth's father's infidelity. Here are some of her own words as quoted in time. At 13, I had read my mother's journals. I discovered that my mother believed my father had been unfaithful to her when I was only a baby. I will say clearly that I do not know if it is true. I only know what she suspected, that my father found other companionship while she was buried in babies. She even thought she knew where, the Willard Hotel in Washington, the place where I had my senior prom, which must have been a bitter pill for her, although I had a suitably terrible time, because unbeknownst to her, I knew what that hotel meant to her. She lived all those decades still loving him, but with something deep inside that would always be restless, even after he died. The possibility of my father's infidelity aided my mother, I knew, but she stayed there, stayed with him, and loved him, and after his stroke when he was nearly 70, she cared for him for two decades with a selflessness that is almost unimaginable. Don't ever put me in that position, I begged John, when we were newlyweds. Leave me if you must, but do not be unfaithful. If there ever was a case that perfectly illustrates how unresolved pain, especially pain that's carried on behalf of someone else, usually that of a parent, will find a way to become healed through being reenacted later in life, then this is it. Elizabeth witnessed her mother being, quote, eaten away by the suspicion of the infidelity, and it is surely eaten away at Elizabeth too, all through her life. Now, as an aside here, since cancer eats us alive, it's not too much of a stretch to implicate this trauma in the causation of her cancer. It is, after all, in the breast, which is the heart chakra. In my experience in working with cancer patients, my observation is that breast cancer is often the result of a broken heart. Not only was her own heart broken in sympathy with her mother's, but she's clearly not forgiven her father for causing the heartbreak. Since forgiveness or the lack thereof is also carried in the heart chakra, as well as repressed rage, I am not at all surprised that she would have cancer of the breast. This seemingly tragic story is also very illustrative 
of how we enroll others to help us heal such deep and painful wounds. Our souls yearn for integrity and wholeness, and at some point in our journey, we'll seek to remove anything that is preventing those qualities from arising within us. Sometimes this can be achieved through our own efforts, but not infrequently it requires the cooperation of another soul who will agree to act out the situation again for us. By their reenactment, we can recognize the pain and bring it to the surface for healing through forgiveness. This is exactly what John Edwards, quite unknowingly of course, did for his wife. He did what Elizabeth suspected her father did, so that she could become acquainted with her repressed rage towards her father and come to a place of forgiveness with him. John loved her enough to sacrifice his career and humiliate himself in front of the whole world so that she might either heal her cancer or at least die free from the pain she's carried all her life. This is not to say that at the human level, John Edwards is not culpable and accountable for the human act of adultery and his betrayal, not to mention his stupidity. That he clearly is, and he will pay the price accordingly. What I'm talking about is what happened at the spiritual level, and in my opinion, it's the more meaningful explanation. Why else would a highly educated, extremely intelligent, intensely rational person with a razor-sharp legal mind, who is perfectly able to assess the risk in any situation, allow himself to be drawn into a sordid little affair with a woman with that clumsy one-liner, your hut? This might hook a rabid sex addict, perhaps, but there's no evidence that John had that addiction. Even to a skeptic, this metaphysical explanation for John's behavior makes infinitely more sense than that he would have thrown away his career for a very risky affair with that one woman. I am absolutely convinced that he, his soul, did it for Elizabeth, and furthermore, her soul asked his soul to do it for her. It's a perfect example of the kind of soul-to-soul -soul healing transaction that typifies what we teach in Radical Forgiveness. It provides Elizabeth with the opportunity to forgive her father and to see the perfection in what John did, not to her, but for her. You also have to ask yourself, why would anyone say to their newlywed husband, leave me if you must, but do not be unfaithful? That seems indicative of an obsession, I would say. She even said that it was not a premonition. I was talking about my own history, she said. She proves the old adage that what you focus on expands and eventually shows up. But beneath all that, her statement is, to me at least, her signal for him to actually be unfaithful at some critical moment in their lives so that she can heal her mother's wound and her own. And you have to admit, he sure did choose the right moment for maximum effect. If I were advising Elizabeth, or anyone else for that matter, who was clearly holding on to someone else's pain, I would recommend two courses of action. First, do a radical forgiveness worksheet on her father so that she could release all that repressed rage and judgment towards him. I would also advise that she do a radical forgiveness worksheet on the other woman, because she was part of the plan too. Without her, it wouldn't have happened. John would be advised to do one on her for the same reason. Second, give her mother's pain back and release the need to hold on to it. The reason I would give 
is that not only is it highly toxic for Elizabeth and likely to nourish her cancer, but from a spiritual point of view, she has no right to hold on to it. By doing so, she is preventing her mother's soul from having the learning experience that was being offered to her in her own lifetime. Elizabeth is, in effect, stealing her mother's karmic gold, and she should return it forthwith. Now you may recall perhaps from what I was saying earlier that the issue of responsibility is one of the most frequently stated objections about radical forgiveness. That people can do anything and not be held accountable, no matter how bad their behavior. Well, of course, that is not the case. In John Edwards' case, for example, it is clear that as a human being, a husband and a father, not to mention being a lawyer and a candidate for president of the United States, he made a very big mistake and paid dearly for it, and deservedly so. By any standards, he did wrong and was responsible for creating a huge upset. But when we view it from the perspective of radical forgiveness, we need also to be able to see the other possibility as well as this one. We need to be open to the possibility that beneath the apparent situation, a wholly different scenario is being played out at the spiritual level. If we were able to see it from the big picture standpoint, we would see its exquisite perfection. The point here is that you can never do forgiveness work for other people. You can only do it for yourself. But we can do worksheets for our own benefit, and some cases our own healing, on events that are not so personal. For example, a few years ago, when we were doing a workshop in San Diego, in Southern California, there were extensive bushfires burning all around. Many of the participants in the workshop were very worried that their houses would be burned to the ground. So, we all did a forgiveness worksheet on the fire. It sounds silly to say it, but I can tell you that the people most concerned became peaceful and calm afterwards, and none of them suffered a burned house, when in fact something in the order of 2,900 homes in the area were destroyed. Who knows what difference it made, but it seemed the right thing to do in that moment. Similarly, when Hurricane Katrina devastated the U.S. Gulf Coast and the city of New Orleans, I decided to do a worksheet on that situation as well. I wanted to do it since it upset me a great deal to see the suffering of the people on the one hand, and it angered me to observe the indifference of the government on the other. I did a worksheet on George Bush and all his cronies, and then I did a worksheet on the hurricane itself. Which brings up another point. It's fine to do a worksheet on a thing or an entity, like a hurricane or a fire, but you always need to personalize it. You need to give it a name and address it as if it were a person. That was not difficult with the hurricane because it already had a name. But we had to do the same thing with the fire. I forget what name we actually gave it, but we did name it and spoke to it by name. By the way, it is important to understand that radical forgiveness is not an intervention technique. If someone is in crisis, you don't come along and tell them that it's all perfect and all part of a divine plan. You wait until the person is relatively stable emotionally and is in a reflective enough frame of mind to be able to hear it. If you go too quickly into radical forgiveness, you may well get an unwelcome but deserved response. Doing that worksheet gave me a chance to reflect on what lessons there might be in this for me and how the perfection might be revealing itself. 
I don't want to ignore or downplay what happened elsewhere along the Gulf Coast, but my thoughts did centre on New Orleans, for reasons that I hope will become clear. One night I heard jazz trumpeter Wynton Marsalis say that New Orleans was the soul of America. I've only been to New Orleans once, but I think I understood what he meant. Not only was jazz, the only new and significant art form ever to come out of America, born in that city, but it also arose out of the soulful suffering of the black people who lived there. They gave their suffering as a gift to the world in the form of their music. Even for non-residents, New Orleans was a place where you could just be yourself and be loved for who you were. People could come from all over the country just to let their hair down and party. It was the one place in America where one's shadow side could emerge and come out to play and be accepted. You could come to New Orleans and be bad for a few days, and no one really expected you to be anything other than that. One's soul is non-judgmental, just like that. It accepts us unconditionally in all our humanness. So that's how I interpreted Winton's observation, that New Orleans was the soul of America. It accepted us just the way we were. But perhaps while we were letting out the naughty parts of our shadow self as we parted, we were also secretly taking the opportunity to quietly dump some of the very much darker aspects of ourselves in New Orleans as well. Over the years, that energy might have accumulated, and maybe the purpose of the flood was to flush it out and bring it up for healing. So what kind of shadow material might we have been dumping? Well, of course, there are many different kinds, but I will suggest just one, racial discrimination. The very essence of shadow material is that it's denied and buried. For many years, America has been largely in denial that we have a racial discrimination problem and a poverty problem. It has also been in denial that the two are intimately connected. We have anti-discrimination laws, affirmative action, welfare, and many other programs that make it seem that the problem is handled, but in the images we all saw as we watched the terrible drama unfold on TV was the actual truth, and by extension, our own real shadow reflected. We saw our own unconscious bias against people of colour in how they were treated, disregarded, abandoned, herded, separated from their loved ones and pets, left to survive in unspeakable squalor and forgotten for days on end by our very own government, which, by the way, is also a reflection of our own mass consciousness. We are the government, and the government is us. The gift in the situation for those of us not directly involved in surviving it was that even though we interpreted it as bad management, the authorities, by withholding their services, enabled us to see this shadow material in such stark terms we simply couldn't miss it. It gave us a wonderful opportunity to heal this aspect of our shadow over five whole days. As we know, waters are always cleansing and healing is always preceded by a crisis. I am hopeful that this flood has begun to wash away much of that shame and any notion of superiority we may have held, whether it be because of how much money we have or the colour of our skin. I'm hopeful because I see the great outpouring of love and compassion for those who've suffered for us that we might all get this healing. In embracing the poor and dispossessed from New Orleans, it's as if we are recognizing and embracing our own shadow 
and at the same time healing the shadow of America. You see, it was never a question of whether my interpretation of the Katrina catastrophe was correct or incorrect. It is simply the fact that I was willing to imagine that there might be another, more meaningful interpretation of the event that made the difference, if indeed it made any difference. You might have come up with a completely different interpretation of the same event, but the effect would have been the same. What I would like to do now is to demonstrate how I used the Radical Forgiveness Worksheet to forgive a major event that occurred back in 1998. It was the mass shooting that occurred at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, in which two boys went on a shooting spree, killing 13 students and one teacher and injuring a great many more. Their names were Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Having terrorised the whole school, they finally turned the guns on themselves. It shocked the whole country to the core, all the more so since they were normal middle-class kids from nice homes. The only motive seemed to be revenge for having been rejected. It's a long time ago now, but how could anyone who was in America at that time forget it? It was a dreadful experience, and it traumatised the whole country. For that reason, I had decided to do a worksheet in order to try to transform the energy. So, I did the worksheet on the two boys, Harris and Claybold. But, since it had traumatised the whole population as one, I decided to do the worksheet on behalf of everyone, including myself. I chose to be the representative of the entire collective consciousness of America, expressing its pain and anguish. So, whenever I say I in this worksheet, I am representing the population of America. Having said that, however, I do own that the thoughts expressed on the worksheet are purely my own. I want to include here most of what I wrote in order to show the progression of my thoughts and feelings as I went through the worksheet and how it follows the five stages. So here it is. I will read both the statements already on the worksheet itself and then my responses. The subject of the worksheet, obviously, was Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Now I start the worksheet and go through each item one by one. Some parts of the worksheet ask for a written response, while others require only that you check a box to indicate whether you're willing, open, sceptical or unwilling to accept a statement. And it really doesn't matter which one of those four you check. So here's the first item. The situation around which I, the collective American consciousness, have an upset is... So here's where I tell the story, in the third person and from a victim's standpoint. These two boys created mayhem in Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, by terrorizing students and teachers alike, killing at least 13 and injuring many more. They had guns and bombs and used both without discrimination or purpose, beyond their enjoyment of killing and getting revenge. They committed unspeakable acts of murder, cruelty and craziness, and have turned our schools into places where terror will reign for months or even years to come. They've made it highly likely that others will copy them. They committed these crimes without either mercy or remorse. They were monsters and the epitome of evil. They remain, even though they killed themselves, a cancer on society. We have to change the laws to make sure nothing like this will ever happen again. Okay, so you see that number one was the equivalent of the first stage, telling the story, and telling it purely from the standpoint of a victim, 
I, the American people, being the victim of these two boys. But I haven't finished the telling of the story phase yet. The worksheet gives me the opportunity now to confront the boys. In box 2A, I am invited to speak directly to them and to let them know how much they have victimized us. Then, in box 2B, I have to say what my feelings are about the whole affair and what I feel about them. So, 2A. I am upset with you because you killed innocent children purely out of pleasure and for nothing more than revenge for being rejected by them at some time in the past. You have ruined hundreds of lives and caused me a great deal of pain. I think you are evil scum. You are monsters and the epitome of evil. I think it's a shame that you killed yourself because we would have liked to see you tried, shamed and eventually put to death on our terms, not yours. We would have liked to have seen you lynched by the parents of the children and all others whose lives you've ruined. You got away too easily. You've started something that will be difficult to stop and all our schools will never know safety again because of you. And then in 2B, it says, because of what you did, I am feeling, and then I'm asked to identify my real emotions here. So I put fearful, terrorized, sad, rageful, vengeful, confused, and helpless. Next comes a series of statements that I read out loud and then check whichever box I feel most closely reflects our willingness to accept that statement. However, as I said before, the truth is that it really doesn't matter which one I choose. My intention to even take up and do the worksheet accounts for 99% of the effect. So I don't have to worry. I cannot do it wrong. Number three says, I lovingly recognize and accept my feelings and judge them no more. So I check willing. I recognize that I am entitled to my feelings and that there are none that are inappropriate or negative. They are what they are, and I love myself for having them. I am a human being, and I am bound to feel strongly about something like this. Number four says, I own my feelings. No one can make me feel anything. My feelings are a reflection of how I see the situation. So I check willing again. My feelings about what has happened at Columbine are true for me at this point in time, and it's okay to have these feelings and I take responsibility for them. My feelings reflect what I think about what has happened, namely, that it's a terrible disaster and should not have happened, and I think I'm entitled to have such feelings. Number five says, My discomfort was my signal that I was withholding love from myself and the boys by judging, holding expectations, wanting the boys to change, and seeing the boys as less than perfect. Now it asks me to list the judgments, the expectations and behaviours that indicate that I was wanting them to change. This step is not so appropriate for this situation as it is in many other situations, especially in relationships. But I nevertheless recognise that my pain is in my making judgments about them that I'm not really entitled to make, since I don't know all the facts and I'm not able to see the spiritual big picture. My judgments about those boys are all negative, and they only serve to lower my vibration. It is in this way that I'm withholding love from myself, I guess, as well as the two boys. My expectations of them 
are those like I expect of all young people, to be compliant, sensible, caring, sociable, respectful and trustworthy. And I am in pain because they were uncaring, hostile, cruel, sadistic and totally without remorse. I am unable to accept them just the way they are, even though they may be acting this way in accordance with their soul contract. Good. Now, as we go to number six, you'll notice that we're going into the uh, third phase of the five stages of radical forgiveness, now collapsing the story. Okay, let me read number six to you. I now realize that in order to feel the experience more deeply, my soul has encouraged me to create a bigger story out of the event or situation than it actually seems to warrant, considering just the facts. This purpose having been served, I can now release the energy surrounding my story by separating the facts from the interpretations I've made up about it. Then I'm asked to list the main interpretations and circle the level of emotion and attachment that we have around each interpretation. So, the facts of this situation were that two boys came into the school with guns, killed 13 people and one teacher. They are the facts. Now, what you're invited to do here on the worksheet is to give your interpretations that you made up about that event. And the ones that I put down here are that the boys must have been crazy or evil to do such a thing. It's an unsafe world now. You can't trust anyone anymore. And where were the parents? They must have been bad parents. Others will copy this situation and it will happen again in schools all around the country. We need police in schools to prevent this kind of thing from happening. The victims were innocent children. Gun laws are to blame. So those are some of the interpretations that I remember making up about the whole thing. And what you do is to have a look at how much emotion that you have now about the interpretations that you might have made up about those things. So number seven invites you to see what core negative beliefs might have come out of that story or which continue to drive the story. And there are a number of things there on the worksheet that are not really relevant to this particular situation because they're mostly written with the idea of relationships in mind and individual situations in mind. But one that jumped out at me was, life's not fair. And with the box at the bottom there, I put, it's a dangerous world. Now that's a belief that I might have developed as a result of this experience. Now in opening to a reframe, we're starting to go towards stage number four. Now just before we go to number eight, you'll notice that we say that we're opening to a reframe. We're not at a reframe yet, but we're just opening to one. So in number eight, let me read that one out. I now realize that my soul encouraged me to form these beliefs in order to magnify my sense of separation so I could feel it more deeply for my spiritual growth. As I now begin to remember the truth of who I am, I give myself permission to let them go. And I now send love and gratitude to myself and the boys for creating this growth experience. Now, clearly, this is a difficult one, and it's asking us to do a tremendous amount. So I'm going to check skeptical on this one. I don't think I can quite go to willing or even open. It's a tough one. Now, let's go to number nine, where we're invited to notice a pattern and see the perfection in it. Let me read what it says in number nine. 
I recognize that my spiritual intelligence has created stories in the past that are similar in circumstances and feeling to this one in order to magnify the emotional experience of separation that my soul wanted. I am seeing this as evidence that even though I don't know why or how, my soul has created this particular situation too in order that I learn and grow. And then I'm invited to list similar stories and feeling experiences as in 2B and notice the common elements in them. Well, it's almost impossible for me at this moment to accept that I've created this situation and it's designed to help me grow spiritually. But I realize this is the philosophy of radical forgiveness, so even though it's really hard for me to see this kind of event as divinely guided, I'm going to check open. I want to be open to that possibility, otherwise I'm forever stuck as a victim. I don't see any number patterns or synchronicities, though I don't doubt that I probably could find some if I studied the history. But when I stand back and look at the situation, I am able to see some interesting parallels and connections with what's happening elsewhere in the world. For example, both the boys and I, the collective consciousness of America, use extremely sophisticated technology. We both reflect a belief in the power of violence, the glory of weaponry, and the right of everyone to resort to it when provoked as a way of settling disputes or removing unwanted and inconvenient people from our path. Perhaps the boys were simply mirroring for me, in a very dramatic way, my belief in the power and rightfulness of violence as a way to get my way and, when things don't go my way, to exact revenge. So, yes, maybe I am at least willing to see that something might be going on here in terms of them teaching me that power, control, manipulation, separation, isolation and other forms of violence, overt or covert, actual or implied, active or passive, is completely out of alignment with spiritual principle and is blocking my spiritual growth and development, keeping me stuck in the victim archetype and ensuring many more hundreds of years of exactly the same. Numbers 10, 11, 12, 13 and 14 are again statements to which I need to respond with one of four options, willing, open, skeptical or unwilling. I'll read out all of them to you and then tell you how I responded. Number 10. I now realize that I get upset only when someone resonates in me, those parts of me that I have disowned, denied, repressed and then projected onto them. I now see the truth in the adage, if you spot it, you got it. It's me in the mirror. Number 11. The boys are reflecting what I need to love and accept in myself. Thank you, boys, for this gift. I am now willing to take back the projection and own it as part of my shadow. I love and accept this part of me. Number 12. Even though I may not understand it all, I now realize that you and I have both been receiving exactly what we each had subconsciously chosen and we're doing a dance with and for each other to bring us to a state of awakened consciousness. Number 13. I now realize that nothing you boys have done is either right or wrong. I am able now to release the need to blame you or anyone else. I release the need to be right about this, and I am willing to see the perfection in the situation just the way it is. 
Then number 14. I'm willing to see that for whatever reason, my mission or sole contract included having experiences like this, and that you and I may have agreed to do this dance with and for each other in this lifetime. If it is for the highest good for both of us, I now release you and me from that contract. So here were my comments as the collective consciousness of America to those statements. I actually did check willing on all of those statements, but I also made some additional comments as the collective consciousness of America relating to those statements. Here are my comments. I am big into denial. If I wasn't into denial in a very big way, institutionally, corporately, governmentally and personally, my society would look very different. Denial is a natural defense mechanism designed to protect us from sudden overload on the emotional system. But it has become more than that for me now. It's become a way for me to sustain ways of operating in a world that are far more heinous than the crimes committed by Claybold and Harris. Denial is the mechanism, the only mechanism, that allows me, and especially people who work in certain industries, to sleep at night. For instance, how else could people who work in the tobacco industry do it if they weren't anesthetized by denial? How could they sleep in full awareness that the product that they spend their lives making, promoting and selling, kills millions of people every year? When they advertise to teenagers, which they're clearly still doing, are they any less guilty of mass murder than Klebold and Harris? Am I? In pure numbers of people they kill each year, they're infinitely more culpable. I could go on and on, example after example, and I take full responsibility for all of it. After all, if that wasn't in my consciousness, it wouldn't be there. That's spiritual law. Yet, if I wasn't in denial, I'd go mad. But sooner or later I have to wake up to what is happening and heal myself. My very survival demands that I shift from this fear-based paradigm that I've been using for eons that separates, exploits, degrades, manipulates and controls others, all in the name of my being successful, to one that is based on love, connection, cooperation, compassion, respect, equality and oneness. It will only come when I break through my denials and begin telling myself the truth. Could Claybold and Harris be the denial busters that I need? Am I willing to let that idea in? I think maybe I'm at least willing. What about repression? Well, that's just a deeper form of denial, but it's always way below conscious awareness and is all the more insidious for being so. I repress and erase from my conscious awareness what I hate most about myself. This becomes my shadow side. But despite the repression, it's hard to keep this stuff down there in my unconscious mind. My higher self always keeps moving me in the direction of healing myself, that is, loving my dark side as well as my light side, so I can become whole. Therefore, I keep attracting people who will keep resonating those issues for me. We say that they push our buttons. However, I have a strategy to beat that game, one that will enable me to avoid facing my shadow and dealing with it, and that strategy is projection. Once I have attracted someone who exhibits, probably in far greater measure than I, the same characteristic that I can't stand in myself, I project all mine at him or her and see it all over there. Only then do I feel safe and free of that pain. I did that for years with the Soviet Union. Then, when the Berlin Wall fell down and suddenly I didn't have a country to demonize anymore, 
I quickly found Saddam Hussein. He was a perfect villain on whom to project my shadow. He pushed all my control buttons and resonated all my trust issues, power issues, and deep shame that I feel about the genocide we committed on the Native Americans, which I haven't even come close to looking at, let alone healing. Then there's the deep shame I feel about slavery and the war in which millions of people died trying to protect my right to own slaves, not to mention the subtle ways I continue even now to marginalize and humiliate blacks and other minorities. I demonize Saddam for killing his own people and raiding other people's lands and assets. But I've done all that and more. But I won't even look at that. It's too painful. It's much easier to make Saddam the scapegoat. And, if push comes to shove, we'll go to war with him to maintain the projection, in the full knowledge, of course, that I'm many times stronger than him and would certainly win. If I can reach the place where I can see that Saddam is in every sense fulfilling his role as my teacher and my healer, I will be taking back the projection and forgiving myself. If I can simply see him as a soul that was given that assignment only because at the soul level he had enough love to be able to do it for me, as well as all the others who needed to integrate and love their dark side, I will be able to release the energy I have locked up around this issue and free Saddam from the contract. But now, let's get back to Klebold and Harris. Are they a gift to me in the same way? We've already seen that they have mirrored for me all my dark side issues and pushed every button I have. Normally, I would protect myself from the pain of facing my own failings by vilifying them, making monsters out of them, and in so doing, project all my stuff onto them. That way I wouldn't have to change. But as I do this worksheet, I am conscious of a spiritual awakening and a deep realization that I am being guided away from making that projection. I am being guided to break a pattern that has lasted 5,000 years a pattern kept in place by my believing in and becoming slave to the victim archetype. A pattern I feel I am destined to break. Somehow I feel I've been given this task. It's fallen to me to raise the vibration of the whole world so we can all go home. So those comments relate mainly to numbers 10 and 11. So now let's look at number 12. Even though I may not understand it all, I now realize that you and I have both been receiving exactly what we each had subconsciously chosen and were doing a dance with and for each other to bring us to a state of awakened consciousness. I now realize that these two boys enabled me to heal many things within myself and yet I also recognize that they too had lessons to learn and deep issues of their own to heal. It takes a wounded healer to heal another. The wound in me evoked the healer in them, and vice versa. Of course, I will never know what either of the boys' lessons were, nor whether they learned them, either before, during, or since the act of blowing their brains out. I nevertheless recognized they played an equal role with me in the healing dance, and I pray that their souls are now in peace. Okay, number 13. I now realize that nothing you, Harris and Klebold, have done is either right or wrong. I am able now to release the need to blame you or anyone else. I release the need to be right about this, and I am willing to see the perfection in the situation just the way it is. It's still very hard to go to the place of saying nothing right or wrong happened. I see that this is true at the spiritual level, 
in that everything that occurs is orchestrated by spirit for my highest and best, and that the souls that died and suffered volunteered to do it for me. I know that death is just an illusion, as is pain and suffering, but it's still hard for me not to feel the terrible pain of their loss, along with their families who still live. It's really too early in the process to see that nothing wrong happened. Maybe in a year or two, when things have begun to heal, I might be able to truly forgive those boys at this deep level, drop all my judgments and feelings around what they did, and begin to more completely feel the perfection of it all. I am, however, able to drop my need to be right. I've had so much invested in being right about my beliefs, most of which are highly toxic and have led to my projections and, in some cases, wars. I am willing to see that I created a world out there that corresponded to my beliefs, beliefs that were founded in fear. I am ready now to create a world out there that mirrors the love in my heart that is beginning to form. Okay, so now number 14. I'm willing to see that for whatever reason, my mission or soul contract included having experiences like this and that you and I may have agreed to do this dance with and for each other in this lifetime. If it is for the highest good of both of us, I now release you and me from that contract. I check willing here because I believe that it is likely that we do come in with specific missions or jobs to do agreed upon in advance. Perhaps these two boys came in with the mission to heal me, the collective consciousness of America. Okay, now let's go to box 15. I release from my consciousness all feelings of, and I put fear, terror, sadness, rage, vengefulness, confusion, and helplessness. These were the ones I had in box number 2B. I now realize that the situation far from being the awful, tragic situation it seemed to be, was all part of a divine plan. It was orchestrated by spirit so that I, the consciousness of America, could experience a healing that might possibly result in a healing of my shadow and lead to an awakening and a shift in mass consciousness. So now going on to the reframe statement, number 16. The story in box number one was your victim story, based in the old paradigm of reality, victim consciousness. Now attempt a different perception of the same event, a reframe, from your new empowered position, based on the insights that you have experienced as you've proceeded through this worksheet. It may be simply a general statement indicating that you just know everything is perfect, or a statement that includes things specific to your situation if, that is, you can actually see what the perfection is. Often you cannot. Be careful not to do a reframe that's based in world of humanity terms. Note any positive shifts in feeling tone. Commenting further on the reframe, let me sum up how I have shifted since the beginning of this worksheet. I declare that it's now clear to me that Claybold and Harris were mirroring for me all my false beliefs about how the world is or should be, and in creating the situation, pushed all my buttons in such a way as to resonate in me all that I had denied, repressed, and projected onto others. Thus they were offering me an opportunity to heal everything and grow, as well as to raise the vibration of the planet. They made me realize that what I see out there is just illusion, a projection of my split mind, 
that believes that we are separate from everyone and everything, and that all the drama I create out of that belief is simply an outplaying of my consciousness in this regard. Despite the seeming evidence to the contrary, fed to me through my five senses, none of it is real. It is simply a projection of my mind. What is real is the divine love that is flowing beneath the situation. And that's all that is real. Let's go on now to number 17, which is a proclamation. I completely forgive myself, the American collective consciousness, and accept myself as a loving, generous and creative being. I release all need to hold on to emotions and ideas of lack and limitation connected to the past. I withdraw my energy from the past and release all barriers against the love and abundance that I know I have in this moment. I create my life and I am empowered to be myself again, to unconditionally love and support myself just the way I am in all my power and magnificence. And going on to number 18. I now surrender to the higher power I think of as God and trust in the knowledge that this situation will continue to unfold perfectly and in accordance with divine guidance and spiritual law. I acknowledge my oneness and feel myself totally reconnected with my source. I am restored to my true nature, which is love, and I now restore love to Klebold and Harris. I close my eyes in order to feel the love that flows in my life and to feel the joy that comes when the love is felt and expressed. Now, number 19, a note of appreciation and gratitude to you, Claybold and Harris. Having done this worksheet, I now realize how important you were in my life. You gave me the gift of forgiveness, radical forgiveness. The families, of course, will be feeling the loss of all the children and feeling the pain of those who were hurt. But at the same time, some will perhaps find themselves willing to entertain the idea that this whole thing was divinely guided, that you too played your part as given, and that God does not make mistakes. I completely forgive you, Claybold and Harris, for I now realize that you did nothing wrong and everything is in divine order. I bless you for being willing to play a part in my awakening. Thank you. And I honor myself for being willing to play a part in your awakening. I acknowledge and accept you just the way you are. And now to number 20, a note to myself. I honor myself for being willing to see the perfection, even if I can't actually see it yet. Just the willingness is all that it takes to shift the energy in the direction of healing. Spirit hears it as my willingness to surrender and to trust life, and that's what this is all about. Thank you, God, and so it is. I recognize that I am a spiritual being having a spiritual experience in a human body, and I love and support myself in every aspect of my humanness. So that brings us to the end of the worksheet. As you will have noticed, that was a pretty long worksheet, and I can tell you that it took a long time to write. They don't have to be as long as that, of course. They can be quite short and to the point. But Columbine was such a big event, I felt I needed to go really deep into it in order to shift the energy for myself. Looking back, 
It's difficult to know if it had any effect at all in the wider world, but it helped me. If it contributed in some small way to the overall raising of the consciousness of the American collective, I'm grateful. And I hope it helps you to see how a worksheet can be used in situations that are beyond self and yet affect you deeply nevertheless. Another such situation occurred on the 26th of December 2004 that also prompted me to do a worksheet. The event was the huge tsunami that hit the islands of Indonesia and killed thousands of people and made many more homeless and destitute. The exercise of doing a reframe, other than affirming your willingness to entertain the possibility that there is a perfection in it, is only to make educated guesses at where the perfection might lie. Given the level of our awareness of the spiritual big picture, that's all we can do. But if our inspired guesses help us to wrap our minds around a situation like the tsunami, to the point where we might become receptive to the possibility that there was and is a divine purpose in this apparent disaster, then some purpose will be served. There is an analogy I used in my book, A Radical Incarnation, that likens individual beings in relation to the whole to that of a wave appearing to be separate, but in reality still part of the ocean. Just as an individual comes from the all that is, incarnates into form as a body, dies, and falls back into the one, so a wave rises, appears to take on form, and then falls back into the ocean again. Birth, death, and rebirth, happening simultaneously in every moment. Incarnation and reincarnation. Now, as I understand it, ordinary waves appearing to incarnate are caused by influences outside of the Earth itself, like strong surface winds and tidal forces caused by the gravitational pull of the Moon. The tsunami that occurred in the Indian Ocean, on the other hand, was birthed by an eruption from deep within the Earth. And unlike waves that tend to be unidirectional or choppy, this one radiated out in all directions from a single point in the ocean, subsuming all other waves in its path no matter what their individual existing directions were, forcing them to combine their energies with the big one. Computer models are now showing that the wave was not confined to the Indian Ocean, but indeed spread throughout the oceans of the entire world. This was truly a global event, the intention of which, in my view, if you can possibly ascribe an intention to such a natural event, is to awaken the whole of humanity. There is ample evidence that the Earth, Gaia, is a living organism, and therefore has consciousness. If we subscribe to this hypothesis, we can fairly assume that Gaia does indeed have intention and spiritual intelligence. Also, since we are made from Earth, the Earth itself is our mother, and like mothers and children everywhere, we share the same consciousness. On the day after Christmas Day, 2004, the pain in our mother's belly erupted. She could contain it no more. The sound of her pain went around the world. Everyone heard it. Everyone responded. The result was a great outpouring of love, compassion and generosity, equal in vibrational power and intensity to the power of the tsunami itself. This to me was the great hope of this event. It was in such contrast to the cruelty, hatred, 
racism, bigotry, and beastly treatment of human beings on all earthly life by other human beings, that was the dominant reality before the tsunami hit. I think that what erupted with such violence from the belly of our mother was our own shadow material that we've been burrowing deep into our subconscious for many thousands of years. But why now? Well, many people are intuiting that we're about to go through a major shift in our spiritual evolution that will take us from the third into the fourth and even the fifth dimension, where love is all there is. However, what we know for certain is that for as long as we refuse to heal our own shadow, it cannot happen, at least not without a great deal of disruption, pain and suffering. If all the prophecies are to be believed, unless we do something radical about this now, we will experience massive earth changes where we'll be dragged kicking and screaming into the new consciousness with millions of people dying. We can make a choice now to awaken and make that shift consciously without having to experience such pain or not. So what can we do? The answer is surprisingly simple. We have to forgive ourselves radically now for creating all that poverty, war, disease, pain, suffering, abuse of power, greed, racial bigotry, genocide, slavery, discrimination of all kinds, dysfunctional relationships, addictions, violence, corruptions, and so on. What does that mean? To forgive ourselves radically means to love ourselves for creating all of this, because it was, and still is, apparently, all part of the divine plan. And there are no exceptions. It was all divinely guided. It was all necessary to bring us to this moment of awakening where we can actually make the choice to have heaven on earth now. My sense is that the tsunami was a not-so-gentle wake-up call. The time is now. However, let me give you a warning. Do not fall into the trap that so many have already fallen into of using the tsunami experience as a way to beat ourselves up about our apparent failings stupidity and waywardness. That will only reinforce the shadow and cause more of the same. Radical forgiveness and total acceptance of self is the only way to heal the shadow and the only way to create change. One striking feature of the disaster that is symbolic of our capacity for denial and repression of our own true nature and our connectedness to all things is that no animals died in the event except those who were literally tied to human beings. Every wild animal fled to high ground in good time. The only explanation is that they have remained connected to nature, whereas we have disconnected ourselves from it. One of the prerequisites for integrating one's shadow is to have a lot of humility. In realizing that all the animals of the earth were infinitely more intelligent and aware than we were, gives us a powerful lesson in humility. 9-11 gave us the same opportunity, but has yet to be recognized as such by most Americans. Iraq will probably turn out to be another. I feel moved at this point to express my deep gratitude and give blessings to those souls who volunteered to make such a violent transition to the other side in order to teach us humility, to show us how disconnected we have come from our true nature and to prompt us to begin the healing process before it's too late. We bless you and all of those who were dear to you, who have chosen to remain, and upon whom we have the opportunity to pour our love. It is interesting to note, too, that this event was not the fault of any human being, government, 
corporation or entity. There was no one to blame. Perhaps that's what allowed people to open their hearts and their wallets to the degree that they did, whereas in other disasters of equal proportion or even greater, they have not. Our need to blame closes the heart and steals our compassion. Had this occurred through human error, greed, abuse of power, etc., I think it would have directly stirred our shadow material and we would have closed down immediately. Our focus would have been on blaming and projecting our own shadow. That's what happens in war. We close our hearts, demonize the enemy, reflective of ourself, of course, and justify the carnage. There are currently 35 wars on the planet. 40,000 children are dying every day from preventable diseases. 23 million people have died since World War I from war-related violence, and the United States has been closely involved in a great deal of it. We close ourselves off from it because it resonates the violence within us and stirs the war going on in ourselves. We seek all sorts of distractions to keep us from thinking about it. In this case, however, because there was no one to blame, nothing to get self-righteous about, and no one to project our shadow onto, that created the opportunity for us all to feel nothing more than compassion, love, and generosity. No anger, no self-righteous indignation, and no attacks. But the genie is out of the bottle. Having experienced the power of pure compassion, unadulterated by politics, finger-pointing and profiteering, and what it can do to alleviate suffering and create change, we have learned that love is infinitely more powerful than anything else. Aid was organized and dispatched at greater speed than ever before, with no thought for monetary cost or of political concerns. Even the wars in several of the stricken areas were put on hold as everyone pulled together. Religious differences, racial differences, and all other imagined differences that we human beings make in order to create separation suddenly evaporated. We were all just human beings again. And we can make use of this opportunity. If you would commit to holding on to the idea that this event and everything that happens is purposeful and divinely guided for just a few weeks and to see it in terms of an opportunity to raise the consciousness of the planet, you will be serving humanity and our mother, Gaia, powerfully well. There's another wonderful opportunity to heal a specific part of our collective shadow, currently being presented to us. I'm referring, obviously, to the great banking crisis occurring as we speak in 2009. The button it is pushing in everyone is greed, obviously. And oh, how powerfully the bankers have mirrored that back to us. And how quickly we became enraged when the crisis first hit by the multi-million dollar bonuses the executive paid themselves, even while they took us into the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. It was so easy to project all our own greed and associated shame onto the bankers. In fact, it was quite a wonder to me that there was not mass rioting in the streets as people saw their retirement funds disappear virtually overnight because of what the banks had done. Jobs disappearing and a whole way of life evaporating. Everyone knew that suddenly the American dream was dead and that things would never be the same again. 
Perhaps the riots didn't happen because deep down everyone can see that it was our collective and individual greed that had caused it. I must admit that I got caught up in it and went to victim land for quite a few days. I just couldn't get my head around those executives paying themselves obscene amounts of money, in many cases $30 million or so, each, even while the whole economy was crumbling because of the stupid risks they took. I felt they should have been put in prison, not rewarded. I was very angry. But then I did some worksheets and began to see how Spirit had created this opportunity, yet again, to help us heal our shadow. It was also an opportunity to awaken and shift our consciousness away from greed, lust for power and money, and move towards a consciousness based on generosity, sharing what we have and supporting each other. Has it happened yet? No. Will it happen? Sometime soon, I think. It's just going to take a few more crises to wake us up, that's all. I read recently that if you calibrate pain on a scale of 1 to a 10, we only change when we reach 10. Now, just like I explained earlier, that when I'm listening to my client tell her story, I'm listening for the clues to what might be really happening beneath the apparent situation. I began to do the same with this banking crisis as I did the worksheets. And the big clue for me was that no one actually saw it coming. It was as if spirit, or shall we say, our collective spiritual intelligence, wanted this to happen so much that it put everyone to sleep. Looking back, it's so obvious that for years the whole financial system was built on nothing of any real value and was a disaster waiting to happen. But no one said stop. It seems that it absolutely had to happen. It was the same thing with 9-11. Looking back, there was so much to indicate that something of that nature was going to happen. But again, everyone was put to sleep. Precisely so it could happen, in my opinion. 9-11 was clearly a huge wake-up call for us all. But we didn't see it as such, and in fact used it as a justification, falsely as we now know, to go to war with Saddam. But I am still very much of the opinion that 9-11 was created by our own collective spiritual intelligence as a lesson to be learned. Quite what it was, I'm not sure, and I don't know whether it has been learned yet. But as I have said before, we don't need to know the details, only to recognize that everything happens for a reason and that there are no mistakes. I did a lot of worksheets on bin Laden and all the others involved in 9-11, including those in government who willfully ignored the obvious. Oddities and absurdities are also indications that something strange is going on. It seemed to me extremely odd and absurd that in spite of all the negativity about bonuses, they were still paying them out and publicizing the fact that they were doing so. If that wasn't designed to enrage us and push all of our buttons around money, I don't know what was. It did me and forced me into doing a worksheet, in fact. To that extent, I guess it was successful. You know enough now to be able to go ahead and do a worksheet on your own for yourself, especially if you are, or were, one of those who lost your job as a consequence of this situation with the banks and AIG. In fact, it wouldn't be a bad idea to do the three letters on these issues. In conclusion, then, I want to make an extremely important point, and that is 
that one person doing a worksheet on situations like this that appear to be negative makes a huge difference. It raises the vibration of the whole planet and contributes to an increase in mass consciousness, not to mention that it helps to dissolve the energy around the actual situation. Imagine the difference it would make if millions of people did it every time something big happened or a war looked imminent. I believe that it's possible to create world peace through the application of radical forgiveness, and I continue to do this work because I'm still committed to the mission statement I wrote many years ago, which is, my mission is to raise the consciousness of the planet through radical forgiveness and to create a world of forgiveness by 2012. I hope you've been inspired enough to be one of those who will do the worksheets and by so doing, help me fulfill that mission, even if I got the date wrong. Before I sign off, I also wish to acknowledge the support and help I've received over the years from my wife, Joanne, in making it possible for me to do this work. She travels with me everywhere, supports and expands the work, and is my partner in this endeavor to bring radical forgiveness to the world. I could not be more blessed. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. This concludes Radical Forgiveness with Colin Tipping. Music by Stephen McNamara from Prana Groove, available through Sounds True. For more information on the work of Colin Tipping and Radical Forgiveness, please visit RadicalForgiveness.com. For additional copies of this recording, or for a complete catalog of Wisdom for the Inner Life, please visit Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com or call 800-333-9185 or write the Sounds True Catalog, P.O. Box 8010, Boulder, Colorado, 80306. Thank you for listening. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.